Hello, welcome back to the New Discourses podcast, and welcome back to our little series on the strange death of the university, in which we're exploring this somewhat horrific UNESCO document from Knowledge Driven Actions. This is the title of the document Transforming Higher Education for Global Sustainability. <clears throat> Pardon me. So, we are entering into the fourth episode in this series, which I expect will be the last. I don't think I'm going to read through chapters four and five of this document as podcasts. We can leave those for homework. But to kind of summarize, this is a 100-page document published by UNESCO. That's the United Nations Education, Science, and Cultural Organization, and it was published this year in 2022. This document is quite explicit, as we've been hearing. Its point is to transform all higher education institutions in the world to be vehicles to, to achieve the sustainable development goals of the United Nations Agenda 2030, which in the previous episode, which was about conquering your discipline and the strange death of science, um, the natural sciences being a particular target for them, uh, we pointed out that the kind of irony is that the only people who trust the idea of the United Nations Agenda 2030 are the people who actually think it's a conspiracy theory and that it doesn't exist. Um, it doesn't exist. It's a conspiracy theory, but we have to trust it. It's not happening, but it's here's why it's good that it is. That's the logic every single time. So in this fourth and final episode of this document, we're going to explore chapter three, which is titled Ways of Knowing. This is where they're going to go after transforming knowledge production itself, epistemology, into a, as Paulo Freire might have it, a gnosiological attitude, a, a gnosis, a, 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 you know, a special knowledge-driven approach, where, of course, what we're going to find out is that we have to incorporate other ways of knowing so that we can achieve the sustainable development goals, because they're not going to be achieved by the usual ways of knowing, which would show this to be an agenda-driven pile of bullshit. Okay, so uh, just to summarize for the fourth time, why is this series called The Strange Death of the University? And the answer is because the university is committing a strange death by becoming an activist church, really, a, a cathedral, if you will. It's kind of framed off of the idea that I read in John Henry Newman's The Idea of a University which he wrote in something like 1852, where he said that a university without theology is going to try to do the job that theology does badly anyway. So the social sciences kind of filled in that gap and have started trying to direct what a university is supposed to do or how it's supposed to think of itself. Maybe it's ontology, maybe it's purpose or teleology. Maybe it's a set of values, it's axiology, and what those value, where those values come from and what they mean, and on and on it goes. A, a system of ethics, of sociology, the whole thing. We've talked about this at length many times, I'm not going to do it again. But the phrase I keep using is that a theology should be binding and orienting a bunch of fields of knowledge toward, say, some North Star, which is like literally the divine, the highest conception of that which is good. And what I'm claiming here is that the university is dying because in order to be a university, it has to have bound and oriented its uh, its endeavors at least toward 
seeking truth, not to becoming an activist think tank, not to becoming a vassal organization to the United Nations and a particular agenda that it's driving, at least for now, in eight years, we get to 2030, at which point sustainability is going to change meanings. It's not going to be a sustainable planet. It's going to be a sustainable program that they've put into place. And now, instead of being pointed at the North Star of Truth, it's being pointed at some new star, which is an agenda-driven thing. So we're now binding and orienting all of the fields within the university, the sciences, natural and social, and the humanities and the arts. And everything else the university does, administrative, cultural, civic, etc. In fact, it calls for an increased civic engagement. We're going to bind them and orient them toward the Agenda 2030 definition of sustainability and achieving the 17 sustainable development goals of the United Nations, which are meant to, quote, transform our world. The goal is to not to understand the world, of course, but to change it. Of course, I've made the point repeatedly that this is communism, and I think it's extraordinarily clear that this is communism. But let's just pick up. Let's not do a really long preamble on this episode. Uh, let's phrase that more honestly. Let's just get this over with. Ways of knowing, for me, is a very painful thing to see attacked. This is, if people ask me all the time, so we're doing more preamble. James, how'd you get into this? And I tell them, you know, well, it depends on how you want to hear this story. And I usually actually gloss over this key point. The key point, there, there were a number of tipping points along the way. But I usually kind of jump into the grievance studies affair and talk about what we did with the fake academic papers that we wrote and exposed academia for being corrupted in this way, actually, four years ago. And I talk about how one of the papers was about education and we advocated using a progressive stack methodology and a privilege walk to assess kids' privilege levels. And then we're going to treat them and in fact mistreat them according to how much privilege they have. More privilege, more mistreatment. But we'll do it compassionately, we said, because that's funny. Ha ha, it's a hoax paper. Ha ha. And the peer reviewers wrote back and said, we love this idea. The paper needs some more development, but we love this idea. But... And here is the big key, but you have indicated that this should be done with compassion, and you can't use compassion because that threatens to recenter the needs of the privileged. And I was like, well, shit, this is the logic of a genocide. This is how you, I don't know whether it'll come about, but this is where they start. And I asked my wife if I could quit my job and dedicate all my efforts to doing this, uh, exposing this woke ideology and its theory and its background and its operations, etc. And one thing led to another, another, and new discourses was born a couple of years later. Cynical theories came out, got in a lot of hands. Race Marxism is getting in a lot of hands. And we're making an impact, and it's great. But if we take one step backwards, why did you do the Grievance Studies Affair in the first place? And it turns out that it was an attack on ways of knowing. It turns out that, and I referenced this in the previous episode of this series, it boils down to this weird academic paper, the feminist glaciology paper. Maybe I should read that sometime just to show people that this is real, like for real. So there's a paper written in 2016. It had a lot of National Science Foundation money behind it. Varying reports indicate $400,000 to $800,000 on the grant that produced this and other papers and other research from taxpayer money through the National Science Foundation. And it was saying that the science of glaciology uses 
masculinist and you know privileged or chauvinistic or whatever ways of knowing that exclude feminist, female, and indigenous perspectives on ice, and that if we don't fix this, then there's no way we can fight climate change. Now, I'm not going to detail again how crazy this paper is. Maybe I'll read it at some point for you guys. This paper's nuts. This paper coming out was a turning point in my life into the degree that I've had an impact, a turning point in a lot of things. It was a very significant paper, but what the paper is about is about attacking the idea that a natural science is wrong by using natural scientific ways of knowing. And it wounded me psychologically and emotionally pretty badly. Um, I think the only handful of people who saw it would have been maybe my wife, um, and then I would have reported it maybe to Peter Boghossian and Helen Pluckrose. This was before the project, uh, the Grievance Studies of Her project. But still, I was in communication with them at the degree where they probably would have heard that I basically locked myself in a room for three days and refused to do anything because I was so depressed that I saw a high-ranking academic journal, in this case in geography, that had published an academic paper professing to need to overthrow science to fill it with activist bullcrap and indigenous mythology. Um, and that's what we're going to see in this. I, I took all this time to point that out because that's what we're going to see in this. Uh, document from UNESCO here in 2022. Now, since I, men I mentioned this in the previous episode too, but since I mentioned it um, here in in the Grievance Studies Affair, in after the feminist glaciology paper, one of my ideas that, that I had was, well, let's just copy the feminist glaciology paper and turn it into astronomy and make it about queer and indigenous and feminist astrology and saying that if we don't include astrology into astronomy, especially queer and indigenous and feminist astrology, then it's a sexist science and exclusionary, blah, blah, blah. And I literally just copied the 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 ice paper, the glaciology paper, um, almost paragraph by paragraph and rewrote it in terms of astronomy. And then just kind of, we're going to massage it. If I think I wrote it very early in the project, I think if we were more sophisticated with our knowledge and how these things work, that I could have made that one work to where it would have passed peer review on the first time instead of being, you know, given helpful comments that may have led to its acceptance later or not. I don't know. But the reason I bring it up is because one of the peer reviewers, and I mentioned this in the previous episode, said that one of the things they really liked about it is that it was a real attempt where they had had a lot of success as activists at penetrating into the social sciences. They'd had very little, comparatively, very little success penetrating into the natural sciences, and that was a great attempt to do so, and into physics, no less, or astronomy, at least. And so here, what we see is UNESCO, four years later from the Grievance Studies Affair, or three years, I guess, no, it'd be four years, sorry, four years later from the Grievance Studies Affair peer reviewers, but I guess um, six years later from the Feminist Glaciology paper, kind of finishing the deal. And so I bring you now chapter three of this UNESCO document, again, which is titled Knowledge-Driven Actions. It should be Gnosis-Driven Actions because these people are Gnostic wizards. Uh, Transforming Higher Education for global sustainability in chapter three is ways of knowing, which is going to tear my soul apart to read this to you. <laughs> but here we go. Section 3.1, diversity and uniformity in higher education. Diver so diverse is the magic word here. And diverse, of course, is a lever that these people are going to use to be able to bring in activist agendas, activist activity 
uh, in the guise of doing something noble, just to make that clear. That's really what diversity is about. It's about hiring experts or bring again, experts, activists. It's about hiring people who are experts in diversity, hiring people who have critical consciousness, bringing in critical theorists and critical theory perspectives under the guise of doing something noble. That's all diversity is about in this huge diversity push that we hear all the time. And so this starts with diverse cultures, the first two sentences for two words. Diverse cultures possess different stores of knowledge. So if you've been following along with my Freire podcasts, you're going to remember that what I said, that one of the main things that Paulo Freire did was he made a Marxist theory of knowledge and knowing. And then he attached that to education and ended up making a Marxist theory of how education works by transmitting knowledge and knowing and thus making knowers. And it can do so by transmitting knowledge that reproduces the existing society, which is bourgeois and bad, or it can do so by giving them so-called political literacy, which is to say to give them the knowledge and knowing necessary to be transgressive. But what it requires is that it brings knowledge that is considered marginalized and externalized from the existing system into the existing system. So the vehicle by which the Marxist theory of knowing created, not by the postmodernists, but by Paulo Freire, although the postmodernists added to this by their theories of knowledge and power and the way that knowledge and power are uh, co-constituted and how they, um, I guess, uh, are, are influenced by who gets, you know, he who holds the power gets to decide what counts as knowledge. That's even stronger a theme in Ferrari than it is in the postmodernists who are more interested in how meaning is construed and how power flows through meaning-making structures such as discourses. But that's beside the point. Um, the idea is that well, this is what the basis for the decolonizing the curriculum projects are. I mean, this is, and it all really boils down to Freire that adopted postmodern tools to strengthen it later. The idea is that you have to identify knowledge that's considered outside of the existing system. You want it to be perceived, not necessarily as true, but as valid. That's their magic word, valid. This is valid knowledge too. You have to stand on a perch of uh, superiority or bourgeois values or whatever it is to say that that knowledge, say from an indigenous culture or from a feminist, is not valid. That somebody's lived experience, which is the phenomenological interpretation of what they think happened to them through the lenses provided through these theories. Uh, I had a whole episode on New Discourses Bullets about lived experience. It explains that. You should listen to it. But the goal is to find diverse knowledges outside of the established knowledge, which is established for fraudulent reasons, and to move them in as a wedge to unseat established knowers and replace them with activists. That's the real project here. That's the real goal. And this is what UNESCO is about to push. And the reason is because they're going to want to wedge out people who are going to say this is a bunch of crap or who might challenge their, their views. And they're going to bring in people who are going to be uh, committed to achieving the sustainable development goals as their primary objective. And if you get enough of those people in an institution, you create hegemony. You get enough policies wrapped up with those people. You enforce that hegemony and you can reorient the university from being bound and oriented toward truth to binding and orienting it towards something different. And in this case, it is the sustainable development goals of Agenda 2030 from the United Nations which turns out not to be a conspiracy theory. 
So diverse cultures possess different stores of knowledge, perspectives on the world, and languages through which to express that understanding across continents with their distinct countries, localities, and communities. Differing worldviews can be seen in the relationship between humans and nature, whether this is one of separation or unity, and whether it aims at control or harmony, and, be, and between human beings and their conceptions of community, power, distribution of resources, and justice. So you can get what's going on. I'm telling you, they're saying there's lots of different kinds of knowledge out there. The kind we have is bogus. It upholds an unjust power dynamic. We need to bring in people who understand how this works and who are oriented toward a different conception of justice. If you think they're really going to bring in indigenous perspectives or mythologies or whatever you want to call them because they want them there, you are sorely mistaken. Those are there to be a wedge. They're going to use those things, and when they don't need them anymore, they're going to discard them because what's going to be required is fealty to party and nothing else. Even within particular cultures, there are diverse views on the nature of reality and how human beings might apprehend it. Yet, these other ways of knowledge and creating meaning are rarely represented in higher education institution settings. See, that's what I'm telling you. They're looking for a wedge, and the wedge is going to be used as a justification. So you can picture a wedge as kind of triangle-shaped, and think of it like an axe head, right? It tapers down to a blade, and it's got a flat end on the back. The activist is hiding behind the back. The point is to drive the wedge in. That's your indigenous knowledges, or whatever, diverse knowledges. And the activist is hiding in the back. So you wedge open a space using this crap argument, and then the activist jumps out, into the space and occupies. So they crack through the wall of the higher education institution with the wedge, and then the activist comes in behind. That's what this is about. The mainstream structure of academic knowledge through disciplines has been highly successful in generating predictive knowledge through which technologies can be developed. So this is one of the mechanisms they're going to use, is they're going to frame out what we do as successful but narrow. This is how all of this grift works. This is actually going, this, this is all in, I know it's a little abstruse to put this here. This is all ultimately esoteric religion posing as politics. That's all it really is. So esoteric religions like Hermeticism and Gnosticism and some weird blend of them where they were synchro, uh, synchronistically combined in the Middle Ages, kind of expressed through, uh, you know, weird characters, Ficino, uh, Hegel, Jacob, was it Bamin or however you say his name? Looks like Bohm, but it's not pronounced that way. B-O-H-M-E. Jacob Bohm, Bamin, Bamin. I'm trying to figure out how to say that. I can't say German. I quit. It has an umlaut over the O. I don't know. Who cares? The point is that this is all this hermetic crap. And this is exactly what they always do. The hermetic trick, how it's become a parasite onto every religion in history. Where did Kabbalah come from? came from Hermeticism, latching onto Judaism. That's what it is, by the way. Where did all these weird Christian heresies come from? Hermeticism, parasit parasitically latching on and saying, oh, the Christ is really just one figure in the grand... And that's what they always do, and that's what they're doing here. And they've done it with science. They've done it with all these things. I've been reading a lot of their books. They're painful to read. They're wild and crazy. But what they do is they say, whatever the thing you're doing is, yeah, it's right. We're not going to deny it, but it's not totally right. And it misses a few important points, but that's beside the point. What, what it really matters is 
that it's very low-level knowledge. And in fact, we already all know that. Everybody who's into the occult and the esoteric knowledge already knows all of this. We already know of all of quantum physics. We already know all of Christianity. And what you don't understand that we do understand is we understand your entire religion, but there's so much more. It's like if there are 49 levels, you're on like level two, but we're on like level 12. and We can help you get up here and we're climbing the ladder to join our cult. That's how it always works. It goes around and says the thing you're doing isn't wrong. It's just low level and narrow. We have a higher level, wider path that you can get onto that's going to work better. And that's what's happening here. The mainstream structure of academic knowledge through disciplines has been highly successful in generating predictive knowledge. See, it works, but it only generates predictive knowledge, one type through which technologies can be developed. So it only has one purpose, technological rationality. Now, remember, if you remember all the way back to episode one, they invoked Herbert Marcuse's One-Dimensional Man as a book to keep going back to. Guess what the, one of the main themes of Herbert Marcuse's One-Dimensional Man is? I went and reread it in the meantime, by the way. Turns out that it's the technological reality, that everything is geared toward, everything in kind of knowing has been geared toward a technological rationality that then is going to feed back in, that kind of flattens out people's experience so that everything that matters is that which can be applied to technology, blah, blah, blah. And what people like and feel like changes their lives is technology, blah, blah, blah. That's one-dimensional man is what that is. It's also hermetic wizardry. But if you read the first chapter and the last chapter of one-dimensional man, not the conclusion, chapters one and nine, that book is a book of hermetic wizardry. You can actually tell if you know hermetic wizardry pretty well, and then you read chapters one and nine of one-dimensional man. You don't have to read anything in between to get the point. It's really obvious. The higher education institutions, which are now the primary locus for the development and learning of that knowledge, are among the most valuable. See, again, the most valuable of our contemporary institutions, providing an essential space for deepening our understanding of the world and for personal and societal transformation. Mm. So now you see what they've done. Providing an essential space for deepening our understanding of the world, okay, and for personal and societal transformation. Hmm, no. No, 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 no. Trying to understand the world so that we might better make use of our experience in it is not trying to transform it. Transforming the world and social transformation and personal transformation is not the goal of truth-seeking, but they just shoehorn that in. And so that's just one way to achieve this thing that they're not even actually trying to achieve. And what they would say in response to that is, oh, you're not even conscious of the thing you're trying to achieve. But no, it's not about consciousness. It's about correctly interpreting what's going on, which they are not. They are misinterpreting the idea of understanding the world better so that we can accord ourselves better to the world, to use kind of a Marx-driven image. Marx said the animals accord themselves to the world, but man makes the world accord to him. No, we change such small things that's so arrogant and stupid. The things that we make aren't that much more advanced or awesome than a beehive. I'm sorry, and that's the one of the examples that Marx gives. We are learning how to make use of our environment to create certain benefits and, and you know, shelter, food, etc. We are not transforming the world. The world is a lot bigger than us. We are humble before the awe and majesty of the world or of God or whatever else. We are not transforming the world. We are not doing personal and societal transformation. That's what they're doing. That's hermetic alchemy. And so here's a, this sentence is a trick, right? The universities that we have are doing something very great, very valuable, and they actually provide an essential space for deepening our understanding of the world. That's so good. 
Of course, it's just a little bit. It's just the technological rationality part. And then also for this thing that they're not actually doing and for personal and societal transformation. Yet in order to maintain this role in the context of an increasingly interconnected world, HEIs, higher education institutions, must be open to diverse ways of knowing, expanding the epistemic space to include both mainstream Western knowledge and other forms. This they do not explain. They just have asserted this. We have mentioned this a bunch of times throughout this series. They just keep asserting things. To maintain this role of what? Of having an essential space for deepening our understanding of the world in an increasingly interconnected world. And to maintain this role in the context of not in the context of an increasingly interconnected world. To maintain this role in the context of a bunch of activists trying to use this to break it open, which they'll destroy it if they don't go along with it. That's the thing. It has to include other ways of knowing. That's what they've said. And they have a footnote here about mainstream Western knowledge. Throughout this chapter, we will refer to Western knowledge or systems. We use this geographical term as shorthand to describe the particular epistemic, institutional, and also moral orderings. The term is used to draw a distinction with indigenous ways of knowing, and also where we argue against the homogenization of scientific research in higher education. We acknowledge that while it originated in the classical world of ancient Greece and Rome, we think of and understand as what, what we think of as and understand as Western culture, drew in many influences from outside, including the Middle East and India. They're having to do their little give homage thing, among others. We're aware, aware that the term Western is in itself ambiguous and has a tendency to mask crucial distinctions and specificities. Wherever possible and necessary, we will therefore provide more specific clarification. That's the most Helen Pluckrose paragraph I've ever had to read in my life, except ones written by Helen, which would have had three times as many words. Okay, so the, the key thing here is we're using this as shorthand to indicate knowledge-based, institutional, and moral orderings, but we're just we're using it to draw a distinction with indigenous ways of knowing, which are, therefore, you've now got your very simple uh, dichotomy of the included ways of knowing that are illegitimate, that have declared themselves unfairly as being in possession of a kind of property called knowing, moral certainty or moral validity or whatever, then you have the excluded ones that were unjustly excluded and you've created your conflict theory, your Marxist conflict theory. That's the Frarian frame. But now you know what they are. Okay. Not being inclusive of diverse knowledge systems is leaving valuable knowledge on the cutting room floor. Is it? Like, let's take an example from the feminist glaciology paper. Last time I talked about a part in the feminist glaciology paper where um, they said that we should use feminist art projects that have something to do with ice. Okay, we'll set those aside. That's not valuable knowledge, by the way. That's stupid. But they also point out that we should be taking into account indigenous myths about certain kinds of, you know, ice as a sex, by the way. There's male ice and female ice. I guess this is before, this is in 2016, so it was before that would have been transphobic to write that and wouldn't require an entire extra sentence to talk about that. But male ice is dry and gritty and full of rocks and doesn't give off much water and it's ugly and the pretty blue stuff that's really moist and wet is female ice. But it turns out that they talk about how the ice has sex. Ice sex. And then this is how glaciers reproduce. This is fake. This isn't real. This is just not true. Ice doesn't have sex. Ice is not a living being. This is not correct. We do not have to leave. This is not leaving important knowledge on the cutting room floor. This is not important knowledge. And when they brought this, another example that they give from indigenous knowledge, 
in some indigenous culture that lives near glaciers that has a superstition that when you fry fat too vigorously in the vicinity of a glacier, that it makes a glacier angry and the glacier moves. And they actually, this is also not important knowledge. This is bullshit. This is a myth. This is a superstition. And so when they took this, in the paper they talk about how they took this to the to the, a real glaciologist and asked him why he hasn't included this in all of his stuff about flow and velocity and viscosity and whatever other, I don't know what the terms are, all these important scientific things to measure how glaciers actually flow and move. And he shut the door in their faces. And they said that that was even more proof that he wasn't open to diverse ways of knowledge and it would leave important, valuable knowledge on the cutting room floor. These people, this is just a wedge. This is fake. So they've just asserted this and then said, if you don't do it, we're going to leave important other knowledge on the floor. Actually, we're probably not. We, we very likely are not going to. Uh, that's completely bogus. That's just words that you use to wedge your way in somewhere you don't belong. Like in universities, these people are frauds. They don't belong in universities. Greater engagement and dialogue with diverse communities will strengthen higher education institutions' capacity to build global knowledge for sustainability. Just asserted. Never explained. How? They don't say. Well, the reason is because sustainability is giving these people power. And so, therefore, it will enable them to do what they have to do to gain power. Throughout history, there have been processes of diversification and homogenization of language, culture, and knowledge. With the emergence of empires in different regions of the world, the cultural forms of the metro of the metropolitan I can't believe I can't say that word. Metropolis. It's like Superman. With the emergence of empires in different regions of the world, the cultural forms of the metropolis were spread through the vassal states. Th though with varying levels of imposition of uniformity. In other words, London imposed its values on India, which you can go to India and see that it's exactly like London, right? Mm, no. In some cases, the lingua franca has been adopted voluntarily to ease trade and scholarly communication. Yet the period of European colonization from the 16th century led to the forced undermining of language and knowledge traditions in the Americas, Africa, and to some extent Asia, and to the consolidation of the nation state in the modern period sorry and the consolidation of the nation state in the modern period led to the imposition of national languages and the undermining of local cultures throughout the world you mean like how they have in china that there's one one country one language is that is that what they're talking about the one language policy where every chinese has to speak mandarin and all the cantons were shut down and all the other 50 some odd different racial groups and the different regional groups and the hundreds of languages that were spoken in China are all being bulldozed from Mandarin. Is that what they're talking? No, that's not what they're talking about. Mm, never mind. In the contemporary era, the dynamics of globalization with increasing circulation of ideas through information and communications technology, travel and trade has intensified the process of homogenization. You know, like having one language in China. No, 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 not in China. Not in China. Leave it alone. Particularly through the spread of the English language. Oh, yes, that's right. So if we were all forced to speak a Zhongwen instead of uh, English, which I don't remember how to say in Mandarin, um, that would be okay. The geopolitical movements outlined above have led to the direct loss of cultural traditions. I'm sure what they're talking about is when Mao came with the four old, with, with the sweep away the, the all the demons, and and destroy the four olds, 
um, and destroyed ancient Chinese culture. And then they wrote a fake Chinese history to kind of bring it back a few years later when they realized it was an important, valuable commodity. Mm, no, that's not the direct loss of cultural tradition. No, that's not what they were talking about. The, we only blame Americans and British people for stuff. The geopolitical movements outlined above have led to the direct loss of cultural traditions, but also entrenched discursive hierarchies through which uh, minority or marginalized communities lose confidence in the value of their distinct knowledge forms. The spread of formal education has exacerbated these divides. This is Ferrari. Schools and higher education institutions have rarely provided spaces for diversity of knowledge forms, in most cases being used as instruments of nation-building, encouraging uniformity of language and culture, and relegating alternative knowledge forms to the village or home. Do you see where this is going now? The university is dying. It's not going to be the university any longer. It's going to be this whatever woke, decolonized cesspool of stupidity and activism that they're going to be. That's what, what, to, what, what it's going to become. This historical context has made it highly challenging to achieve epistemic pluralism given the low status accorded to alternative knowledge forms and the loss of confidence in their value even among the communities that hold them. Yeah, it turns out superstitions don't work. And when you give people correct explanations versus their superstitions, they're like, huh, maybe we don't have to believe in the fat moving the glacier anymore. Maybe it has something to do with the sun heating up the rocks. I don't know. I'm just saying. What you're seeing here, though, is all bogus. All they care about is using this as a wedge. These words are merely the front edge of an axe blade, and they are poised behind it to spring into the gap once they can hack the world open. They're going to hack open the university and install themselves more and more deeply, and they're going to do it under the brand name of diversity and the other brand name of sustainability, which somehow this is required to, to build global knowledge for sustainability. I don't even know what that's supposed to mean. But somehow the universities are going to have to do it. And I bet you it's going to require a lot of hiring new people to do it. In this section, and I bet those people are all going to have certain politics. I'm just going just gonna to suggest that. And we're going to have to remove people who have the wrong politics and old ways of knowing. We're going to have to sweep away all the deep. Oh, shit, I did the China thing again. In this section, we address these challenges responding to the second of the key questions posed by the report. How to build on and promote knowledge that comprises a diverse range of traditions, institutions, and epistemologies to promote a truly global knowledge base for the sustainable development goals. Well, if you study glacier sex long enough, you'll be able to combat climate change. That's what the feminist glaciology paper said, so it's probably true, right? It's diverse knowledges. Has to be. You can achieve the sustainable development goal of saving the glaciers. Through the section we address the different ways in which we might understand knowledge diversity or epistemic pluralism, the rationales for incorporating it in higher education institutions and its relevance for the sustainable development goals, its manifestations in practice and implications for the changes needed in higher education. In this, we acknowledge multiple crossovers with two other key topics of interdisciplinarity. That was the previous chapter, which basically means putting them in, putting commissars into positions of authority and the relationship between higher education institutes and society. That's the next chapter that I think is boring and we're not going to read. As well as the recommendations of recent reports such as UNESCO's IESALC 
2021, I don't even know what that stands for, 2021 Recent Work on the Futures of Higher Education. This section takes as its starting point that mainstream academic knowledge has many merits, but should not assert an exclusive claim or relegate other ways of knowledge or irrelevance. Oh, sorry, other ways of knowledge. Other ways of knowledge. Damn it, I can't stand these people. This section takes as its starting point that mainstream academic knowledge has many merits, but it's so limited. It's just one part of a bigger constellation of hermetic ma ma But it should not assert an exclusive claim or relegate other ways of knowledge ugh, to irrelevance or to the merely exotic. Instead, we need to move towards what Santos 2015 calls an ecology of knowledges making room for other ways of knowing, learning, and sharing knowledge in higher education institutions. In doing so, we adhere to the idea of embracing a pluriverse, moving from bulldozer nations of modernity and ideas of saving the world to acknowledging the value of different forms of life and allowing many worlds to thrive, which is why we have to do exactly the opposite and save the world from these fuckheads before they ruin everything. The section first addresses the question of what we mean by diverse ways of knowing the differences between pluralism and relativism or nihilism and the ways in which this might be realized through co-production. That's BS. This section is followed by a discussion of the diverse justifications for multiple ways of knowing in higher education institutions and the contributions they might make to achieving the sustainable development goals. Key dimensions of access, language, curriculum, research, publishing, and community engagement are then discussed. Finally, implications are drawn for action inside and outside the higher education system. 3.2. This is really the meat of the thing. Framing ways of knowing. 3.2.1. Going beyond mainstream knowledge. Do you catch the theme yet? Going beyond mainstream knowledge. Mainstream knowledge, pretty good as far as it goes, but we know something far better and deeper. And there's so much you're leaving out. And they don't want you to know it because it would upset their apple cart. Same scam every time. In seeking to do justice to this topic, a serious challenge arises right at the outset concerning what knowledge and knowing are about in the first place. Nobody's really that bogged down on this, actually, guys. Only people, The only people who actually come in and say, you know what? Maybe it depends on what knowing really means. Are people who want to usurp power for their own purposes. They want to pretend that their bullshit is gnosis, which isn't just knowledge, but it's special, better knowledge. That's what gnosis is, by the way. Gnosis is revealed knowledge. It's not knowledge that you actually obtained. It's revealed knowledge. They've had a special talk with what they believe is the earth or God or whatever, and arrived at some special knowledge. They studied the theory and had its speculative insights downloaded into their brain. And they have special knowledge. And in fact, not only is it special knowledge, it's straight from the source, so it's better than your partial limited knowledge. So we have to go beyond mainstream knowledge. They tell us it makes an important practical difference, for instance, whether the underlying subject is approached as a noun, knowledge, or as a verb, knowing, like where they screwed it up in the previous paragraph. And current mainstream institutions of knowledge management, so mainstream and knowledge management are in scare quotes, the tendency favors the former approach. Albeit recognized as taking different forms, knowledge is conceived of and conceived as 
notionally static and measurable as a, quote, resource or, quote, asset or form of, quote, capital. I'm telling you, this is Freire. Specific kinds of knowledge become visible in instrumental terms, how Marcusian, as material, quote, tools, each supposedly applicable to particular problems. In this way, how one-dimensional, right? That's so one-dimensional, man. In this way, temptations arise under a mainstream view to treat different, quote, kinds of knowledge as clearly separable from each other, each in fixed association with neatly defined and distinguished contrasting aims, roles, contexts, or implications. On this view, the key issue with different knowledges seems to be merely about how to, quote, integrate or, quote, aggregate or, quote, accumulate them in supposedly additive ways. No, the real issue is that most of them aren't knowledge. They're stupid. Imagined in this, quote, mainstream material idiom, differences are conceived in relatively categorical and quantitative terms of bulk properties like mass or volume. Any pluralities are circumscribed by by the tasks in hand and subordinated to the underlying additive commonality. This main, quote, stream, mainstream, main, quote, stream, got it, may move then, but the flows are held metaphorically to be measurable, channelable, and manageable. But this mainstream imagination, 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 pause on that word. That's a goofy word to hear here, unless that's both hears. This is a strange word to hear in this case, unless, unless you realize that imagination is something that's, I mean, this is like, the way that like Lacanian psychoanalysts talk about the world. There's the imagination, which is kind of like this ethereal realm of uh, what we envision to be possible. So this mainstream imagination, so in one of our fake papers in the Grooving Studies Affair was about the masculine imagination versus the feminine imagination. But this mainstream imagination is not the only possibility. The focus may, for instance, be alternatively placed more on knowing as a verb, then knowledge as a noun. See why? Because it's going to shift it into a process, and the process can be usurped by the dialectical process, which they say is the only actual process. See what they're doing? So we're going to shift out of the idea of knowledge, which is something that is, at least for Plato, true and justifiable, um, and shift into knowing, which is this process which in fact is a dialectical thing if they want it to be, where it's theory informed by practice and practice informed by theory and a dialectical relationship of knowing. Which, by the way, because they're the wizards, they're the only ones who have it, and you don't, so they're going to have the superior position on you, not necessarily epistemologically, but definitely nociologically, which is the same thing, but with bullshit mixed in, dialectically. The connotations which then arise are inevitably far more dynamic and unruly about processes, actions, or practices in which the main distinguishing features are ever-moving relationships rather than fixed categories. This scenario has very different implications. Notionally hard material boundaries and differences slip away. Foregrounded instead are contrasting styles, moods, and genres of knowing. Does that not make you a little uncomfortable after reading in the previous chapter that they're going to bring this shit into the natural sciences? And maybe engineering, why not? In place of supposedly distinct instances, what emerges is an interweaving, quote, dance of knowing. 
in which each one of an irreducible complexity of moves connects intimately and profoundly to, embodies and entails a multiplicity of others, which inseparably motivate and co-constitute each other. Let me tell you once again, this is an appeal to them getting to be the only experts in the room. That's all that shit means. We could spend the rest of the time that I have allotted for this podcast discussing what that fucking sentence means. But what it actually means is they get to be the people who understand all of the complexity of what knowledge really is, and you don't, so you have to shut up and listen, and they're in charge. They're right, and you're wrong. That's all that really boils down to. So we're going to shift from knowledge to knowing as a verb process. Is a dynamic process with full of complexities and it's a dance and it's blah blah blah. They're in charge. 3.2.2 from different ways of knowing to knowing through difference. Isn't that cute where they do a word game? See, we're not even going to worry about that there are different ways of knowing or coming to knowledge or interacting with knowledge, which we're not supposed to talk about knowledge anymore. But now we're also going to know through difference or dialectically. When the circumscribed, quote, mainstream, noun-like categorical model of knowledge is expanded into this more processual and relational, verb-like understanding of knowing, doesn't it just make you want to barf? Then many things follow. Set-piece divisions evaporate between quantitative, qualitative, or self-consciously hybrid forms of knowledge. With all quantities clearly conditional on qualitative dimensions, ontologies and narratives, these jealously guarded divides are reduced to little more than presentational etiquettes. So this is what I'm telling you. They're just going to blur all the boundaries around the things and say they're the only ones who understand how complex everything is and why their feminism or whatever is more important than your glaciology and that you're going to have to change things because you're too quantitative. And sometimes you say qualitative things, but they aren't even bound by these low-level distinctions. They're the high-level Gnostics. They're the ones above everybody. And this is, by the way, exactly the kind of shit that you see from Marx and the Marxists. And then they called it a science. It's literally exactly the same thing. Likewise, ostensibly deep epistemic contrast between, quote, interpretive, quote, deliberative, or, quote, analytic knowledge can all be seen as intimate interconnections helping them to define and sustain each other. Imagine trying to do science with any of this shit happening. Rather than starkly dividing contrasting ways of knowing, each can be can in different moments or contexts and its and in its own way be variously quote inductive, quote deductive, or quote abductive. Rigor and precision are going out the window. Frauds and charlatans are going to be in charge of you. If you are a scientist, you should be really nervous about this. I cannot urge you to be nervous enough about this. What is true of mainstream knowledges in academia, policy, and business holds even more true where stratifications of privilege and hierarchies of power are still more pronounced across wider marginalized or actively suppressed social ways of knowing in, quote, local settings, whether geographical, demographic, or institutional, within underprivileged communities of workers, carers, or migrants, around particular practices in agriculture, craft, or homemaking, on the part of groups who are routinely excluded on the basis of 
scrolling up, of their race, gender, class, sexual orientation, or caste, and throughout the multiplicities of indigenous cultures, which is capitalized, whose ways of knowing are most acutely, quote, othered by capital M, modernity. All right. So if you are one of those science people who thinks science is science, science is science, science is a method, it figures out what's true, and anybody on earth can do it, find out what's more true than they knew before, and thus do better by their lives, and anybody can benefit from the fruits of science, this is your moment to shit your pants. This is your moment to freak out. Because that is about to go. That is not how these people think. That is not what these people think. That is not what these people are going to do with your science. See, because that's where stratifications of privilege and hierarchies of power are still more pronounced. Across wider, marginalized, or actively suppressed social ways of knowing. So it's not going to be that you could bring science to, say, sub-Saharan Africa, South America, marginalized groups somewhere in the world, and allow them to learn valuable skills to interact more successfully with their world. It is, in fact, that you are going to have to bow to what those people tell you. If you don't believe me, you should go and you should look up the video uh, Science Must Fall, within the Roads Must Fall broader context. This is in South Africa, and they literally were saying that science doesn't take into effect black magic. It doesn't take it into account, doesn't care about it. If you believe that you're going to be able to reach these different communities and uplift them with science, you have their agenda exactly backwards. And you're going to be the one who's marginalized by this. Now, since they capitalized indigenous, they've given us a footnote to define it. In this report, we refer to indigenous communities in ways of knowing. In 1989, the International Labor Organization, ILO, adopted the Indigenous and Tribal Peoples Convention, number 169, which speaks to those who self-identify as belonging to an indigenous people and those who self-identify as belonging to a tribal people. Can I self-identify as both? I bet not, because only the Gnostics can, can authenticate that self-identification claim. In other words, you have to appeal to a special expert to determine whether your self-identification is legitimate. The whole thing's a power grab. That's what What is a Woman is about. We are aware that the term indigenous is ambiguous and has a tendency to mask distinctions and specificities. Our use of the term indigenous is not meant to exclude tribal or other peoples. For more information on ILD Convention uh, 169, see this website. Okay, so I read it just for completion. So you get the idea. Okay, where did we leave off with them defining indigenous? That such disparate ways of knowing all thread intimately together is shown, for instance, by there being no branch of physics or engineering so elite, tightly codified, or precisely quantified, that it does not also depend on tacit folk practices. Guess which one's going to have to get amplified, boys? Enjoy your physics, enjoy your engineering if you're not going to stand up against this. Because your tacit folk practices are about to get diversified, and that's what you're going to do. Likewise, relations between knowing, they, by the way, I'm not sure that they give any examples of that, they just say it. Likewise, relations between knowing and acting can also be seen to be far more interconnected. Rather than knowledge necessarily preceding practice, the history of experimentation shows that it is at least as often the other way around. The advent of particular practical instruments is often crucial to the transforming of what is known. So they're taking a banal point. That sometimes 
we think differently after we develop the instrument. For example, we understand the world of microbiota because we invented a microscope. And so we can see the world of microbiota and microcrystals and microscopic, lots of things. So then what we know is changed because we invented the instrument. So sometimes practice, the observation, precedes the knowing. And so that's dialectical, and it's transforming what is known. This is how they shoehorn their lies, their bogus, fraudulent crap, into the actual processes of investigation. Don't be mystified by it. Their whole goal is to mystify you. This is the most mystifying freaking thing in this paper yet, um, This where they start getting into different knowledges. Nowhere are mainstream understandings more dissonant than than when they concern the nature of knowledge itself. Though counterintuitive under such views, a more processual, 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 and relational understanding of knowing underscores that qualities of comprehension, underscores that qualities of comprehension and associated effective action are not about asserting orderly, monolithic, hierarchical structures of, quote, knowledge integration. What are needed instead are messy, plural, mutualistic cultures for the appreciation of difference. There you go. That's what you're going to... Good luck with your science, guys. Fight back. Don't cry when... I mean, you, you can cry. We'll help you. God, it's so, so annoying, though. With ways of knowing recognized not to transcend society, but to always, but to be always embedded, situated, and conditioned by their encompassing social context... Hi, Herbert Marcuse, one-dimensional man. The practical picture changes. Realizing the full potential of human understandings is less about different ways of knowing and more about knowing through difference. And recursively turning on itself in knowing knowledge, the solution lies not in adopting one perspective or the other, but celebrating a balancing dance between the two. Hello, dialectic. This is just magic spells to destroy your knowledge based authority if you are in the sciences. That's all this is for. This is a very strange way for the university to die to decide that it gave up on the concept of knowledge. 3.2.3. Recognizing diversity does not mean, quote, anything goes. No, of course it doesn't. Only what the Soviet says goes. Silly, silly, silly. So many of us wasted so many years in woke time, like the woke is around. Oh, if we just say that two plus two can't doesn't always equal four, then that means anything goes. No, it doesn't. It means what they say goes. If we can't answer what is a woman, that means anything goes. No, it doesn't. It means what they say a woman is goes. If we don't know what gay and straight are, no, it means these Soviets get power to decide what is and is not true. One of the most widespread misunderstandings and partisan misrepresentations of what these understandings entail, these understandings, these aren't understandings, these are assertions, this is so stupid, is a doctrine that, quote, anything goes. To interests and perspectives that are so minded, they're, they're correct here. This is a straw man of their view. It is not that anything goes. They get to decide what goes. You need to get that in your head. That means your science. They get to decide what goes. Your math. They get to decide what goes. Your arts. They get to decide what goes. 
to interests and perspectives that are so minded, incumbent structures of power and privilege and existing global knowledge practices can be defended by caricatures, in which the greater degrees of humility, pluralism, and understanding of context described here somehow amount to a relinquishing of cap- capacities to distinguish truth and error. I've said this so many times, I'm going to say it again. They have a means of dis- determining truth and error. It's just subjective. It's just whatever allows them to accrue power. We should go back to the Marxist dictionary. Let me see if I actually have this open still. And their definition of truth. The definition of truth under the Marxist dialectical view is that which moves Marxism forward. I do have it open, so let's scroll down to it. True, true, truth. Truth is usually taken, I mean, this is from Marxists.org. They're Glossary of Marxist Terminology, the Encyclopedia of Marxism, it's actually called, index of the letter T, entry, truth. You can find it at marxist.org slash glossary slash term slash T slash R HTML. Truth is usually taken to mean correspondence of an idea to the world outside thought. However, following Hegel, Marxists take truth to mean something that may be said of a social formation or a social practice itself. Isn't that what the UNESCO document just said before, that we're ignoring certain social? Never mind. The truth of a social practice is always relative, or maybe relational, processual and processual and relational. Since, as Goethe said, all that exists deserves to perish. Okay, let me pause on that. That's a really weird justification for why knowledge needs to be relational or relative. Because everything that exists deserves to perish, but Goethe didn't actually say that. Goethe, who's a poet, maybe he believed it, but he put it into the mouth of Mephistopheles, who's the voice of Satan, in Faust, which is one of those long epic poems that he wrote that turned out to be one of Marx's favorite things to read. And in fact, uh, as a matter of fact, it was Mephistopheles that was his favorite character, and he ran around quoting Mephistopheles, uh, speaking Mephistopheles' lines, including, I would assume, all that exists deserves to perish, which he, as Karl Marx, retranslated into ruthless criticism of all that exists. But anyway, the truth of a social practice is always relative, since, as Goethe said, all that exists deserves to perish. Sooner or later, everything turns out to be false. See Engel's discussion of this and Ludwig Feuerbach and the end of classical German philosophy. Some philosophical currents believe that the truth of an idea can be established by logical deduction from clear ideas. In general, each current has its characteristic criterion for truth. For rationalism, it is reason. For empiricism, it is observation and experiment. Pragmatism makes practice the criterion of truth, but like empiricism, pragmatism knows only immediate individual action and misses the cultural and historical content of social practice. So that's where the Marxism comes in. So pragmatism, Marxism works like pragmatism, practices the criterion of truth, but it requires you to understand the cultural and historical content of the practice in order to understand its true historical causes. That's what Hegel called making the abstract concrete. See, if you just knew about the the action practice being the criterion of truth, that would be very abstract. But if you understand that the practice is embedded in the cultural and historical context of social practices, then you would understand more about it, and that would be more concrete. That's literally what the dialectic is about. You have to claim that the practice is a criterion of truth is to have any content more profound than the truth of the pudding is in the eating, 
then it depends on the notion of truth as objectively inhering in the object itself and practice as socio-historical practice within the totality of a given culture. What that means is, for Marxism, that which makes Marxism work is true. If insisted upon too stridently, the claim that practice is the criterion of truth simply diminishes the value of the philosophical reflection. If practice is the criterion of truth, pure and simply, then the socialist revolutionary must wait for socialism to discover the truth of his practice, since socialism is the objective of his or her practice. In other words, for Marxism, truth is making socialism come true. That's so important to understand. That's so important to understand that this is what, and this is what they're talking about in this horrific document. So we're not talking about anything goes, by the way. What we're talking about with it, this is where they said, uh, where are we here? Uh, doesn't matter. Ironically, it is actually a sign of the strength of these more nuanced relational understandings that they show such categorical positivist assertions to be so manifestly false. See, they think that their stuff shows everything else to be so completely false. Being reflexive about contrasting contexts of knowing in no way diminishes the, cap the capability to be reflective about how each delineates entire fields of truth and error. If truth is the, quote, elephant in the room here, it looks radically different from contrasting angles, but the elephant is nonetheless emphatically there for all that. That's referring to the famous little uh, thought experiment of a bunch of blind people in a room feeling different parts of an elephant and describing, you know, they feel the tail and they're like, oh, it's like this. It's like a snake with a hairy thing on its face. Now they feel the leg and they're like, oh, no, it's a trunk of a tree. And they feel its side and they're like, oh, no, it's like the side of a barn. And they feel its trunk and they're like, oh, no, it's this. And they feel its ear and it's, oh, no, it's like that. But they're all actually describing the elephant. They believe that they're the only one who has the lights on or isn't blind and can see the actual elephant. That's all they're really telling you. Just because many aspects are equally true, quote, true, in representing complex, uncertain, multidimensional realities, good lord, that does not, these people should not be allowed to use the word multidimensional. That does not mean that all possible pictures are equally valid, or that none can be recognized to be false. Given that this misunderstanding is so often expressed so categorically, it is ironic that it should, it should itself represent such a clear category error. Just as appreciating a whole depends in everyday life on views from different angles, in other words, understanding the whole requires looking at the particulars. Wow, that's Hegel. So robust social understanding relies on different ways of knowing. See, you can't understand the whole of the truth without understanding all the different ways of knowing the particular ways of knowing it. Oh, the whole has to be understood in terms of the particular, so the particulars can be understood in terms of the whole. That's the dialectic. That's Hegel. An especially important repercussion of this truism, that diversity of knowing does not mean anything goes, is the current proliferation of authoritarian populism around the world, of cynical post-truth, anti-science, fake news pressures, intensified especially by the pandemic, one noisy reaction has ironically been emotive calls for the authority of mainstream scientific expertise to be asserted in even more prejudiced and overbearing ways. But it is a further strength of the reflexive, relational view of diverse ways of knowing outlined here that this high-profile dogma can itself be so clearly shown not only to be false but potentially counterproductive in disastrous ways. And this point is made by some of the founding mottos of mainstream science itself. 
Dating from the 17th century, these celebrate science as a process for organized uh, skepticism and dissent more than as a supposedly monolithic body of knowledge. The founding motto of the British Royal Society, for instance, is nullius in verba, take nobody's word for it. Albeit rarely fully respected, it is, an aspira- it is aspirational qualities of equality, universalism, communitarianism, disinterest, and transparency, transparency that distinguish science, albeit imperfectly, from other areas of culture like politics, religion, government, or business. Yet when, this, yet when this mainstream culture of knowledge production itself encounters skepticism, dissent, or attempts to engage on equal terms, it too often increasingly responds around the world with ever more intense efforts to assert its own authority. Do you see what's just done? This is so amazing. First of all, this whole thing about the fucking pandemic is just unreal that they that they include this. It just cracks me up that they're like, yeah. So they're saying that people were calling out fake news, and that's that that's a perfect example of things that shouldn't go, because if anything goes, then right-wing populism, authoritarian populism, cynical post-truth, anti-science, fake news, all of that, right-wing people would have to be listened to if anything goes. That's what they, they're actually saying. Then they bring up the... Uh, pandemic and it, it, they're they're simultaneously complaining about both sides of this. First of all, they think that the authorities should have been respected and they don't want these cynical populist post-truth anti-science fake news pressures weighing in on that, but on the other hand at the same time, they want other ways of knowing respected, but only theirs. So what they're saying here and this is what they did, they say Science holds itself up. This is alter casting in a sense, but not exactly alter casting. They are made. This is this is no. This is um. What's his name? Saul Alinsky. This is Alinsky's tactic: make the enemy live up to his own standards. So, but they're doing it wrong, of course. So now they're saying scientists say, you know, take nobody's word for it. We're going to have aspirational qualities like equality, universalism, communitarianism, disinterest, and transparency. And then they're going to bring up again and again, by the way, you never quite meet that, right? And then they say, oh, this is what makes science so much different and more special. It's not dirty like politics, religion, government, and business. It's on this higher level. But when we present other ways of knowing, like feminist interpretations of indigenous myths about burning fat near sex glaciers, it too, science too, often increasingly responds around the world with ever more intense efforts to say that's bullshit. So do you see what they're doing? They're saying, here's your standard that you have to live up to. You're not political, but the second we introduce bullshit, you say no, and that's technically political. That's how they reverse, this is Darvo, that's how they reverse the uh, the responsibility in in the in the situation and get some squishy man who has no spine that works in the sciences to say hmm, maybe we should listen to the feminist glacier people and then ruin their science. Meanwhile, they're also telling you the right wing shall not be listened to because that's the authoritarian uh, populism and that's bad. They will not. <laughs> not that anything goes, y'all. Authoritarian populism's out there that can't go. Could it be, they say, could it be that the globalizing spread of these intolerant preoccupations with, quote, academic excellence, quote, science-based decisions, and, quote, evidence-based policy may actually be provoking the very syndrome they seek to oppose? See? So you're no better. You, this is Satan whispering, not to Eve, but to every weak-kneed scientist and the weak-spined, jelly-spined scientist in the freaking world. 
By denying and suppressing complexities, uncertainties, ambiguities, and inequalities, perhaps these are part of the same authoritarian movement. See, scientists, you're not open-minded. You're authoritarians. Because your calls for rigor, your calls for actual science are marginalizing, they are bogus, they are self-declared superiority to exclude other things you don't want to have come in that would challenge your authority. Marx's theory of science, that's what this is. Far from adding to the, quote, post-truth malaise, perhaps greater plurality, humility, and reflexivity in ways of knowing is key to finding the antidote for this growing pathology of the contemporary world. Listen to these people. But the big point there, there's two big points there. The first big point is, it's not anything goes when they say other ways of knowing. They get to choose. This is the theme over and over and over again. They get to choose what counts. They get to count, choose what counts as being a woman. They get to choose what counts as being indigenous. They get to choose what counts as science. They get to choose what counts as knowledge. They get to choose. This is a power grab. And on, that's the first big point. So they get to choose it. Right-wing stuff, authoritarian populism, not going, doesn't count. Not knowledges. Not knowledges. They know what knowledges are, and it's not that. You don't know what knowledges are. They know what knowledges are, and it's not that. You think it's knowledges? You're wrong. They say that feminist sex glaciers and burning fat and greasing them up is knowledge. They're right. They know what knowledge is. You don't. Your right-wing stuff? It's not that. That's the first big point. The second point is, scientists, hi, you're not holding yourself to your own standard. You're actually a bunch of authoritarians if you don't give us the power. Evil. Evil. It's literally Satan whispering to Eve, except that Eve is like Richard Dawkins or something. You can draw a picture of that. It'll be funny. 3.2.4, co-producing knowledge. What do you think that means? So remember the previous chapter in this stupid document? of Nightmare Proportions was about bringing humanities, arts, humanities, and social science professors and faculty into the natural sciences and making them work together and making it so the natural scientists aren't allowed to say, no, what you're doing is BS. We're not going to do that. Remember that there was a whole point in the, the previous episode, the strange death of science, as I think I'm calling it. Now you're going to be told you're going to have to co-produce knowledge with these people. If we wanted to count as knowledge, it has to take into account more perspectives. We have to, we, you can't produce knowledge. We have to co-produce knowledge collectively among the many, but, but not the right-wing populace, not them. No, not them. That's not knowledge. No, 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 no. Anything doesn't go. No, no, no. Definitely not anything goes. Two plus two can equal whatever it needs to for leftist perspectives, but it can never equal what it has to for right-wing perspectives, say like four. 3.2.4, co-producing knowledge. Among the many buzzwords arising from the more plural, relational, and reflexive approach to knowledge to knowing, sorry, discussed above, fewer more prominent in worldwide policymaking than the language of quote co-production. How I don't know what these people read, but apparently they write a lot about co-producing knowledges. But the fact that even this one term can be used in many, often incompatible, sometimes opposing ways reflects the importance of diversity. That's like where Hegel says uh, with Aufhaben, it was wonderful to find a speculative a word about speculation that's itself speculative. Here, as with the politics of knowledge in a wider sense, what is needed is not insistence on integration, but greater appreciation for difference. What they're saying is you have to allow 
two things that are not possible to be true at the same time to be true at the same time so that we can achieve the sustainable development goals. That's what they're saying. One, of, one major challenge highlighted by this language is that of recognizing that in order to be useful in addressing any given problem, knowledge needs to be, quote, co-produced in particular ways and settings by a diversity of different communities and practices, like Black Lives Matter, probably. In this sense, quote, co-produced knowledge. Remember, we, we, we took knowledge about what's happening to black people on the street from Black Lives Matter, which we all now know is a fraud organization. We could not take it from, say, police officers or people that were doing rigorous research on police outcomes. That was not real knowledge. We weren't allowed to use that. We have to co-produce knowledge, which means we ignore the reality and we listen to Black Lives Matter because that's the one that's epistemically oppressed and not the one that's epistemically privileged. The power flows the other way, so we can't listen to the one with a vested interest. And Black Lives Matter is oppressed, so it can't possibly have a vested interest like taking all your money and not doing anything with it. Just pointing things out. Okay, just pointing. And remember, you have to you have to have self-contradictory definitions worked in because that means it's more important to have diversity, which means when you have self-contradictory things, anytime you hit a decision tree, uh-oh, something has to be done. Which thing do we use? Somebody has to tell you. Some political officer has to decide what the right answer is. You won't be able to figure it out for yourself, but you can always be punished if you chose the wrong one. Remember when I used to give this example from critical race theory? Two people walk into a store, one black and one white. Who do you help first? If you help the white person first, whoops, that's because uh, you know you prefer white people to black people, so you're racist. If you help the black person first, that's because you don't trust black people to be left alone in your store for a few minutes while you help the white person, so that means you're racist. That means when the decision tree arrives, arrives, somebody gets to tell you what the right answer is. And if you choose for yourself, there's a possibility that you're always wrong. So they get to exert arbitrary authority over you. That's not good. But we're going to use it to co-produce knowledge. In this sense, co-produced knowledge is in itself a rather specific kind of understanding, which progressive interests may value especially highly. No shit. I like how they really say that. We have to skip a case study here that nobody cares about. Another crucial insight in this vein is the acknowledgement that inevitably all knowledge of whatever kind is always inherently and unavoidably, quote, co-produced alongside the social orders within which it is produced and shaped. Woo, look, there's the other thing that they always do. This thing is always happening, only we are conscious of it and we have a direction to go with it. So we have to be allowed to do it. And in fact, you can't do it your way, which is unorganized. Natural selection shall be replaced with artificial selection and we will artificially uh, contour the means of production of society and man and eugenic ourselves into the utopia. That's what it says. Not exactly that, but that's the, the this happens in Ferrari, this happens in Marx, this happens in Lukács, this happens in all of them. Again and again, Marcuse, the thing that, the, the bad thing that we want to do is always already happening anyway. Co-production is always already happening. You're co-producing alongside the social order within which you're producing. So if you're producing scientifically, you're producing scientifically according to Western science. So you're co-producing along with Western culture, and that would be chauvinistic. We, on the other hand, are introducing a diversity, which uh, any decision tree, we get to decide what the correct thing was and why you were wrong and we were right. Because not anything goes, the right wing doesn't go. That which we decide today as a right wing doesn't go. That which we decide today is in our interests goes. That's what this is about. In this sense, Recognizing that knowledge is co-produced is about appreciating how context, culture, and power, 
can help shape the forms taken by all understandings. So your understanding of your scientific work in organic chemistry or physics or math or whatever else is shaped by culture and power. That's why 2 plus 2 equals 4 is regarded to be true, but it doesn't admit other ways of knowing about 2 plus 2. It doesn't allow other narratives. It doesn't allow the possibility that it could be 5 if it's valuable for somebody to believe that it's 5 or some other value. That's what this is about. Recognizing that knowledge is co-produced is about appreciating how context, culture, and power can help shape the forms taken by all understandings. This is a general human condition, not a positive quality to be claimed by particular institutions. So the physics department is a particular institution, or the American Physical Union is a physical is a particular institution, or whatever, and it doesn't get to decide they're saying what counts as physics. Somebody else has to. In fact, you have to let other people at the table. But not anything goes. So the people you're not going to allow at the table are people that you can convince other people might be reacting in a ma- or acting or reacting in a right-wing populist or reactionary or whatever way. Do you not understand the power grab here? Your science is going to be destroyed. You just, I can't help you. You don't want my help. I'm sorry. No, I'm not. I'm not. Many fair things shall fade. These meanings are in creative tension. Creative tension means dialectical, means fake, means they get to choose how it used, so they get to usurp power over and over again. These meanings are in creative tension. If co-production of the first integrative kind is merely is held merely to mean inviting new people into a single specific process to contribute to one particular new kind of knowledge, then it can actually suppress the key message of the second constructivist kind of co-production, which is that pluralities in knowledge are themselves both positive and irreducible. On this latter view, attempts to engineer a single integrated body of knowledge will always be contingent on particularities. See that? The whole is always contingent on the particulars. It's Hegel. It's, It's alchemy. This is alchemy. Hey, chemist, listen. This is alchemy. They're going to bring alchemy into your chemistry. Do you want that? No. Stop them. Other ways of integrating will always be possible and hold different implications for practical conclusions and action. So there are tensions between whether the benefits of co-production are seen to lie in striving towards single comprehensive bodies of knowledge or a pluralist sensitivity and appreciation for persistent diversity of understandings. Yet again, I'm telling you, the goal is to have Have it set up so that every time you hit a decision tree, you have to appeal to a political officer to make the decision for you. And any time there's any decision made whatsoever, the political officer has the possibility of determining that you did it wrong. And if they get it wrong and something goes wrong, you still did it wrong. It was still your fault. So the message is reinforced about plurality, humility. Humility means you're going to shut up and listen to them. And reflexivity, which means they're going to push a narrative and that's how things really work where co-production in the first sense encourages collaborations on equal terms across social differences, then it is entirely consistent with this. It is in this way that power and privilege can be progressively challenged, because that's apparently the point of the sciences, right? As much as in ways of knowing, as in wider political orders, but as in science itself, a crucial condition is that power in all forms must be, let me not stutter on those words, must be openly acknowledged and actively countered, not merely ignored. 
Likewise, where the second, constructivist sense of co-production instills greater appreciation for the need for pluralism across an irreducible diversity of context-conditioned ways of knowing, then it is also entirely consistent. See, this is a contradiction that they just said. It turns out it's actually not a contradiction when you understand it from a higher level of knowing and write down a page of words that don't mean anything, except that they get to have the power. Here it is clear that progressive responsibilities and knowledge production are not which kind? Here it is clear that progressive responsibilities and knowledge production are not just about speaking truth to power, but also about acknowledging how power shapes truth. Crucially, this is true in every context, not something even to aim, let alone claim, to avoid. So what does that mean? That means when you say that you're being objective in scientific analysis or mathematical analysis or whatever else, they're going to say power shapes truth. You claim to be objective is actually an assertion of power. You can't be objective. It's true in every context, so it's not even something to aim to avoid or to claim to avoid. So no, you can't claim to avoid that power shapes truth, thus your power shapes truth, thus you have to listen to us reshape the truth on our terms. I'm telling you, this is all a many-page elaborate power grab. Each differing sense of co-production brings to the fore essential values of equality and diversity in and between ways of knowing. Each challenges uh, current pressures for hegemonic integration that can so damagingly reinforce existing patterns of exclusion and appropriations. See, so we're not going to have hegemonic inclusion. Uh, integration. We're going to make, actually we are, our law of projection, they're going, that's exactly what they're going to put in. But they're going to put in a system that they get to pick what it means, they get to change what it means, and when they change it, they call it pluralism, and it's not actually hegemonic, but actually it is. And so if you don't go along with them, though, you are pressuring for hegemonic integration. You're not going along with their pluralistic power grab. And so that's what this is really about. If these forces are to be successfully resisted by indigenous and other marginalized ways of knowing, then, quote, co-production of either kind needs to move away from claims, uh, sorry, claims making, and toward more convivial mutual challenge. That means the privileged people are going to get challenged by everybody else and they're going to like it. That's humility. Guess what word's going to come up in the next sentence? So remember, humility is the opposite of fragility, or resilience is the opposite of fragility, so it means shutting up and taking it. You don't want to be white fragility, right? You don't want to be showing that. You don't want to have white fragility. You want to have racial humility. That's literally what Robin D'Angelo said. Guess what word's showing up in the next sentence? So what we need is to move away from claims-making and toward more convivial mutual challenge. By each questioning the other, guess which way that works, power is going to have to be interrogated, they already said. By each questioning the other, qualities of plurality, humility, and reflexivity are reinforced. Again, this highlights the centrality of knowing through difference, more than different ways of knowing. 3.3. Why are diverse ways of knowing important? Let me allow me to answer this question before we proceed. They're not. They are it's okay to say that. Diverse ways of knowing is some way of knowing and a bunch of shit. They are not. They are not. Rigorous ways of knowing that may come from different perspectives are important. For a lot of reasons. Diverse ways of knowing are not important. In fact, they don't exist. They aren't ways of knowing. They're ways of claiming to know something that you don't know. 
They're ways of claiming to know something that you're pretending to know, as a friend of mine famously put something at one point or another in the past. They're ways of claiming to know something that's phenomenological interpretation of something else. 3.3.1, intrinsic, instrumental, and justice-based rationales. Now we're going to get to the point, right? Instrumental is the kind of knowledge that they don't like because it's knowledge for doing things. Justice-based rationales. Uh Uh-oh. Guess who the only people who understand justice are? Or if justice, if you remember, is the extension of equity into its self-sustaining state, then you understand that it is them, the commissars. Justice-based rationales means commissar-driven or Soviet-driven rationale. means they get to decide. Why is, it, why is it important that we acknowledge different ways of knowing? Let me pause again. It's not. We may be able to identify diverse epistemologies, but does that necessarily mean that we should provide space for them or utilize them? Probably not. There are distinct ways in, in which we can uh, sorry, there are distinct ways in which we can justify the importance of diverse ways of knowing. First, they might be seen to have intrinsic value. So the epistemology and ontology of a community, well, that's different. You, you thought it might be about different methodologies for like, I don't know, working on a problem. No, 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 no. It's the epistemology on, and ontology of a community may be seen as having its own worth, as being valid in itself. Remember I told you they don't like true, they like valid. They don't like knowledge, they like validity. Because if it's valid, that's an emotional, I mean, that has like an emotional component, right? How dare you say that that culture's way of doing things isn't valid? That's meaningful to them. How dare you step on that? That's cultural chauvinism. That's the move. The epistemology and ontology of a community may be seen as having its own worth, as being valid in itself. You know, like cutting the hearts out of people who are still alive like the Incas did. Bringing richness to the lives of those within it. See, exactly like that. Furthermore, the existence of a diversity of worldviews may enrich the lives of all. This is citing Miranda Fricker. Miranda Fricker is the person who came up with the ideas of, uh, what's it called, epistemic injustice with its two branches, which are hermeneutical and testimonial injustice. So that's a whole side thing. But the in, in the new book I have coming out about Paulo Ferrari pretty soon, which is going to be called The Marxification of Education, I actually talk about Miranda Fricker and then downstream from her because she got massively criticized later because she was not, uh, she was she was too uh, rigorous still. She wasn't pluralistic enough or whatever, co-producing enough or something. And so she got supplanted by a black feminist scholar by the name of Christy Dotson. But anyway... So this is where this is all situated. Um, Chapter 8 of Cynical Theories discusses this issue. Second, diverse ways of knowing might have instrumental value. Alternative ways of viewing the world and stores of knowledge can lead to better outcomes in a material sense. For example, more effective forms of health care or better response to tsunamis can be achieved if we draw on indigenous knowledge. Well, sometimes, yeah, we can get some some ideas of, you know, things that you can, can like Chinese or other countries or uh, ethnicities, herbal medicines. And sometimes they work, and sometimes they point you in the right direction, and sometimes it turns out they don't work. Sometimes they're made up. Sometimes it's, it, it's something completely different. And that's why you have to then bring it under the purview of actual science to figure out what's going on. 
So drawing upon indigenous knowledge and relying upon indigenous knowledge are two different things that are being conflated here. An example of the instrumental combining of Western and non-Western knowledge systems can be found in pharmaceuticals. The very existence of bioprospecting by medical anthropologists as a major field of funded activity shows in terms of manifest action rather than words that ostensibly, sorry, that the ostensibly, quote, science-based field of medical governance has actually been conditioned by undoubted realities and hard-nosed economic interests to acknowledge that entirely different epistemologies and ontologies are nevertheless capable of developing robust knowledge that science will often enough be in a position to validate. Holy shit, that's a long sentence. All they're saying is that sometimes indigenous medicine actually works and science figures it out later. But they even here say so that science will eventually validate. In other words, the actual scientific method is what act- methods, I guess, is actually what does the validation. That's all. This is just so stupid. But this is why we have to like listen to glacier sex, right? To stop climate change. Third, acknowledging providing space for diverse ways of knowing might be seen as a question of justice. Uh oh. In the, in the light of the historical processes of colonization, exploitation, and marginalization, there may be a requirement, a requirement for redress by acknowledging, respecting, and providing space for the worldview of a particular community. Okay, so you got to have like academic reparations. So we have to let like indigenous tribes people come in and teach some seminar on, on indigenous math class and give mathematics credits to people that want to become engineers or some shit because we owe academic reparations because there was colonization 300 years ago. What the fuck are you talking about? For all peoples, regardless of a particular histories, we can see it as a human right and a fundamental mark of respect for dignity that their culture, language, and knowledge systems can be expressed and are valued in all spheres of society. No. No, we do not have to value in all spheres of society. That is not human right anybody has. What the fuck are these people talking about? Intrinsic, instrumental, injustice-based rationales. Okay, let me just slow down. What's the point of this? point of this is that they are going to get put into power. Don't forget that. Intrinsic, instrumental, and justice-based rationales all have their place, although they may be emphasized to different degrees by different actors and organizations. Instrumental rationales are useful in bringing on board those who may initially be skeptical about the intrinsic or justice-based value. See, so it's either that communities have intrinsic value or that there's some justice related question, that's really what matters, but you can use the fact that maybe, say, Chinese medicine is useful for something and can point us in the right direction as a lever to get people to listen to it. That's what they're actually saying. They don't actually like instrumental knowledge or instrumental approaches to doing things. They actually hate them. They talk about how much they hate them all the time, and they have since, like, the 60s, maybe even before that. What they like is levers where they get to use your values against you to get in. See, if you would have just ignored indigenous ways of knowing, you wouldn't have known that Cordonopsis has particular medical value, blah, 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 blah. So if you ignore glacier sex, then we're going to have climate change. There's a whole lot of horseshit that goes on in exactly this type, and that's what this whole section is about. Where were we? On the other hand, if these latter rationales are not acknowledged, a change of circumstances may mean, which were the latter ones, intrinsic 
value and justice-based value. On the other hand, if these latter rationales are not acknowledged, a change of circumstances may mean that epistemic pluralism is abandoned in favor of more restricted views. For example, where a pharmaceutical company has exhausted the usefulness of an indigenous community uh, in identifying plants for its operation, maybe they just, you know, they went in, they found out, oh, that mushroom you guys stew up, very useful, or that soil thing that you're, that thing that we have in your soil over here, very useful. In fact, we're going to win a Nobel Prize for something called ivermectin off of, oh shit, don't talk about that. But then you might not care about the indigenous tribe anymore. You mean like, oh, thanks guys for teaching us about the mushroom that does all this stuff. That's really great. And science has validated this. And so now we're going to package it up and sell it because it'll help a lot of people. And you guys are, you know, still going to be a valued source of that, but we're not going to like make you the exclude. I don't know. In practice, it's, a, it's important that we maintain all three of these approaches. No, maintaining two of them are mostly BS. We do want to treat people with some fairness. We do want some ethics involved. We don't need to have intrinsic value, weird appeals to human rights, and weird social justice definitions of shit. But it's been a dry section so far that hasn't hardly at all talked about the Sustainable Development Goals. Let us correct that. 3.3.2 Contributions to the Sustainable Development Goals. Now, I want you to all remember that everybody who trusts the United Nations Sustainable Development Goal Program thinks that Agenda 2030 is a conspiracy theory. Everybody who believes that it exists and is a real agenda doesn't trust it. Okay, that said, we'll begin. The 2030 Agenda is about sustainability. I see, you see why I did that? Haha. <laughs> the Sustainable Development Goals that stem from it are both diverse and plural. And therein lies their strength. This is why the same organization, UNESCO, published this article in 2019, three years before this, saying that we need social-emotional learning to achieve the sustainable development goals because the fact that they're so diverse and plural, which is apparently their strength, self-contradictory shit is very strong, is a great strength for uh, communist regimes, but it turns out it induces cognitive dissonance in children that needs to be managed, and social-emotional learning is a great tool for managing their cognitive dissonance. It's literally what it says. This diversity of goals, but also of metrics and targets, catalyzes and articulates different kinds of knowledge. And these diverse perspectives are mobilized thanks to the emphasis the 2030 Agenda places on democratic processes. Sustainability, however, is, let me just actually, I actually have this horrific document, SEL for SDGs. I think I can actually find this pretty quickly. Uh, cognitive dissonance. Okay, dissonance and the sustainable development goals. Actually, we can go a little bit higher up here. The sustainable development goals uh, are not necessarily a set of consistent objectives, but rather a series of potentially conflicting goals. From the perspective of the development agent, these conflicting objectives entail inconsistencies in actions and antecedents needed to attain the sustainable development goals. For example, eradicating poverty, a societal objective, might curtail, or at least in the short term, uh, might entail, sorry, or at least in the short term, working the self to the point of compromising personal well-being, another sustainable development goal. An another clear example of such conflicts is the slow progress or even resistance to climate change policies because of the relationship across work choice, economic growth, and climate change. Thus, attainment of these goals may necessitate a balancing act. Development agents may consider multiple options and make trade-offs. 
dissonance in the sustainable development goals at the level of individual and social collectives, these trade-offs and so sustainable development goals will be quite taxing because of the because the conflicting goals are in uh, effect inconsistent cognition, primarily referred to as cognitive dissonance or just dissonance. According to dissonance theory, one of the most tried and trusted theories in the behavioral sciences, inconsistent cognitions evoke aversive arousal states, that means discomfort, unpleasant agitation, that leads to attitudes and behaviors aimed at reducing the arousal, meaning you don't want to be uncomfortable. Dissonance is, uh, sorry, the print on this other document is tiny. Dissonance is constituted by two important societal psychological processes, inconsistency among cognitions, a more rational phenomenon referred to as cognitive discrepancy, and the unpleasant emotional and motivational state that arises from holding two contradictory cognitions referred to as dissonance. Dissonance is unpleasant. There's a whole paragraph about that. All these problems it causes, blah, blah, blah. Dissonance has, I skipped that paragraph even though it's really funny because we're not going to waste time. I already read it in another podcast. Dissonance has important implications for the attainment of sustainable development goals. It strains development agents, rational cognitive discrepancy, and emotional aversive arousal capabilities to reflect, self-regulate, and act in pursuit of the attainment of those goals. So what they go on to say is how much of a problem this is in terms of attaining the sustainable development goals. And so the social-emotional learning is a perfect tool. They say social-emotional learning has emerged as a uh, as competencies through which individuals recognize and regulate emotions, identify positive purpose, demonstrate empathy for others, take constructive action, promote human flourishing, um, pluralistic thinking, right? all this pluralism shit, blah, 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 blah. Thus, uh, explicit training in SEL built competencies that might empower and enable individuals to regulate emotional responses, such as the uh, aversive arousal or cognitive dissonance caused by trying to achieve the SDGs. So that's another UNESCO document from 2019 saying that we need social emotional learning to achieve the sustainable development goals because they're self-contradictory, pluralistic, blah, blah, blah. And then that's exactly what we hear here as well. But they, they say sustainability, wait, wait, sorry, uh, the diversity of goals would also metrics and targets, blah, 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 blah. That's not what I was looking for. There it is, the strength. The sustainable development goals that stem from the 2030 agenda are both diverse and plural, and therein lies their strength. So long as you have a brainwashing tool to calm you down about that fact, apparently. Sustainability, however, is an area in which traditional scientific production has not always had a favorable impact. Much of the general, sorry, much of the knowledge produced by research and higher education institutions in general has had technological applications that have helped destroy our environment. This is where financing, particularly from private enterprises, but sometimes also from the government, is more easily obtained. Higher education institutions have produced many professionals, particularly in the areas of business and engineering, who are successful because they are taught to favor the design of products and the management of enterprises that generate greater profit for themselves and their employees, or sorry, employers, individual or corporate. Inequality and poverty, two of the most salient problems that the SDGs wish to combat, are a consequence of this, as well as the fact that professionals who reach decision-making positions in business or, or in government have not seemed able to design laws and policies that have effectively counteracted depredatory ways of producing and consuming. We are now in a position where our very existence is endangered. This alone should motivate important reflections on our performance and its effects. So in other words, 
because of capitalism, shareholder capitalism particularly, everybody's been designing and building things and learning things and higher education institutions have been doing their work in order to be productive rather than focusing on sustainability, which one might assume by negation and contrast is not productive. In contrast, many traditional communities have been able to conserve the biodiversity of their territories, yeah, because there's like 400 people that live there, protect the forest, avoid erosion of the soil, control the production of harmful waste. Many have practiced a circular economy for centuries. Yeah, in a city the size of New York or Beijing? I don't think so. And in addition, put limits on accumulation and curtailed gross inequalities in their communities. Oh, communism. Oh, put limits on accumulation and curtailed gross inequalities in their communities. Oh, because some traditional communities have done that, so that's going to work. Communism. This is a consequence of the way these traditional communities conceive the world. Communism. See, they have it right. The noble savage? Correct. Civilized man? Born free, everywhere in chains. For many of them, nature is considered sacred. Profit is not an objective in life, since accumulation is only valid when it is to be later distributed among the community. Communism. Self-sufficiency, on the contrary, is an objective, and that explains biodiversity. In indigenous communities, every product of nature is used, and when the soil is worked, a diversity of cultivated plants are grown that, fulf that fulfill their nutritional and health needs. Yeah, for... never mind. Run New York on that. Run Beijing on that. Actually, don't run New York on that. Run Beijing on that, then get back to me. Many indigenous communities have developed technology that allows them to cultivate their forests, protect their soil, live in climatically adequate housing, and transform the very diverse products of nature, both wild and cultivated. See, the savages have it right. If only we could make savages who were made to live in cities. Through Alfhaben. I know I've combined a French thing and a German thing, but you know where the history is if you follow me, so if you don't, go listen to some stuff. There is ancestral knowledge at stake, admittedly, but also wisdom that allows them to adapt to change and to develop new knowledge and technologies. You know, like sticks with sharper ends? A different way of knowing that leads to adaptation. Again, run Beijing on this. Run Beijing on this for a decade, and then we'll talk about seeing what we can do in a major western city. Beijing apparently is great. Let them try it. These communities survive because they have successfully resisted modern ways of living, producing, and consuming. In other words, they're shitholes. Many, however, have not been able to do so. It is a sustainability crisis that has made humanity look toward indigenous and other ways of knowing. No, it isn't. It's you freaking leftist activists who won't leave it alone and are trying to use those things as levers to gain power for your stupid communism. Just like Rousseau looking back at the savages that he dreamed could be made to live in cities, you have never left the dialectical dream of making savages to made to live in cities and suppressing civilized man because everywhere man is born, or sorry, man is born free and everywhere he's in chains. <clears throat> Come on. We know what you're up to now. We see through you. Still, the outlook of this, quote, discovery is instrumental. To take from them what they have to offer that can be most useful for the rest of humankind. See, it's not even the right way to look at it for them. It has rarely been truly dialogical. Oh, prairie. An approach which would imply meeting the peoples that have this knowledge with humility and openness and a willingness to achieve a deep understanding 
an appreciation of the culture and the vision of the world that supports it, as well as with the disposition to share in the same horizontal manner the scientific way of knowing and specific knowledge on specific issues with the people of different cultures. God, that's a long sentence. This latter approach is one higher education institutions are particularly in a favorable position to adopt. So you guys can go be outreach missionaries to the indigenous tribes so you can steal how they do stuff and offer them uh, science in your anthropology class, apparently. But not Western science too much, because that would be not good. That would be colonization. You're not really going to be allowed to do that. This latter approach is one higher education institutions in particular in a favorable position to adopt. The process and result of the dialogues may then feed into and consequently enrich their research that's instrumental knowledge, guys, teaching and outreach community engagement activities. However, epistemic pluralism is not just a question of Western knowledge being placed in a dialogue with non-Western knowledge. Even within the Western tradition, there are many forms of knowledge and knowing that have been marginalized historically, as emphasized by feminist scholars, among others. Feminist glaciology, bitches, I told you. I told you that's what this is about. This whole thing is feminist glaciology coming true to achieve Agenda 2030. In all forms of professional work, tacit knowledge is crucial, derived not through formal education, but through experience and interaction in the community of practice. You don't have to have a community of practice. Why don't you just have people doing like actual work? And I know that's what you kind of mean, but it's not what you mean. Intuition and imagination. Uh-oh, there's the German romanticists like like uh Baum Baum Berman. I don't know how to say his name. B-O-H-M-E. Jacob Baum Berm Berman. Something. I don't Burma. I don't know. However, B-O-H-M-E. I can spell it. O has an umlaut. You can look him up. And Hegel. So their intuition and imagination. That's also William Blake, for example, who had a huge influence on these lines of thought and probably on Marx. Intuition and imagination. Also, this is hermeticism. It's freeing. You see, you have reason, you have emotion, you have intuition, you have imagination, and those things all have to be kind of harmonized. Actually, I left out sense. The sensuous uh, intuition is not one of them. Intuition is the higher plane of understanding, you see, in the hermetic tradition. But what you're actually looking to combine are... Uh, reason and imagination and sensuousness and uh, emotion. In adi- intuition and imagination, in addition to empirical observation and inductive and deductive reasoning, can also be seen as crucial to science and scholarship in all disciplinary areas within the Western tradition. Opening to diversity must occur, therefore, within as well as between cultures. Such bullshit. This is just a power grab. There are, sub- there are substantiated critiques of the imposition of a global agenda that is based on a fragmented view of the world. The sustainable development goals can also benefit in their future development from dialogue with other ways of knowing. Nevertheless, a sustainable world and what is needed to build and maintain it must be considered the work of humanity as a whole. Hmm. Epistemological dialogue around each of the sustainable development goals and about the whole idea of a sustainable world is particularly worthwhile, because they said so. Pluralities of how to know and diversity of what is known can contribute to build resilience in face of deep uncertainty such as the ones we are living with now. 
Thanks to diversity and plurality, it is possible to solve or accommodate otherwise irreconcilable conflicts, to offer sensitivity across disparate contexts, and to help mitigate epistemic lock-in. This is a huge power grab. 3.4, key dimensions of ways of knowing in higher education and potential implications. 3.4.1, widening participation. Higher education worldwide has seen extraordinary growth over the past half century. More than one-third of the global cohort now go on to some form of tertiary education, up from only 10% in 1970 and 20% in the year 2000. Yet most of the new entrants to higher education institutions have been from the privileged echelons of society, and access is still highly restricted for certain social groups. Lower-income communities, those from rural areas, indigenous and other minority ethnic and linguistic groups, and those with disabilities are underrepresented all across the world. While women now now <laughs> this is gonna be funny. While women now constitute the majority of university students worldwide, in some contexts they are still poorly represented, and across the world there are disparities in terms of disciplines. See, so women are actually the majority now, but we still need feminism. It is essential, therefore, that higher education systems put in place measures to ensure equitable access, communism, and address the neo-communism, technically, and to address the barriers faced by social groups, in particular financial barriers, both directly through tuition fees and indirectly through other costs, and competitive exams which favor those with high-quality basic education. So we're going to have to fix the exams to get the favored people in, and we're going to have to give them free rides. Somebody else is going to have to pay for the education of these groups because diversity. Allowing for a diverse student population and one that is representative of the broader society, like having a majority of women, I suppose, who are underperforming according to feminist standards or something. Allowing for a diverse student population and one that is representative of the broader society is the first step toward allowing for diverse forms of knowing. Well, okay, if that's the first step, just don't do that. It is true that access is not a sufficient condition. Oh, they're not just interested in creating equality of access. It's not just about creating equality of access. That's always been a lie. In many cases throughout history, new social groups have been permitted entry to educational spaces, but obliged to integrate and adapt themselves to the majority culture while leaving their own at the higher education institution gates. A diverse higher education institution in terms of students is not necessarily a diverse one in terms of knowledge traditions. Nevertheless, it is an important piece of the puzzle in conjunction with how other measures outlined in the sections that followed. Sorry, I added a word. In conjunction with other measures outlined in the sections that follow. Furthermore, the process of widening participation is needed for staff as well as students. This means more diversity. This is all they're talking about and in staff. But we've talked about before how that means installing commissars. Uh, you're going to get some other stuff too, but the they're using that to justify installing the commissars, who have the authentic understanding of what it means to be a particular community member. Furthermore, the process of widening participation is needed for staff as well as students. While this is undeniably a challenging context in which higher education expansion is in its early stages with bottlenecks and the lack of PhD courses, efforts must be made to ensure that the diverse communities in a society are represented among academic staff, professional staff, and senior leadership. More diversity, more positions of power for diversity, diversity being a proxy for critical consciousness. 3.4.2 Language There are 6,500 languages in use in the world today, though many of them are disappearing. 
Language is a way that different types of knowledges are expressed. Language and culture are intimately related, and language names what is important to the culture. Leon Portilla, 1998, expressed it by saying that when a language is lost, we lose a window into the world. When we lose a language, things that matter to that culture stop being named. And when they do so, they cease to, they cease to exist. Yeah, like bananas. They don't exist anymore when people aren't calling them bananas. Higher education institutions teach a very small fraction of the languages that are spoken in the world today. No shit, there's 6,500 of them. So what are you going to have, a fucking subunit of the languages department for all 6,500 of them? What are you going to have, two, three, four professors per 6,500? So four times, let's just do three. Three times 6,500 is 19,500 new language professors. Yeah, okay, at every university. So you're going to have to hire 19,500 new language professors at all 20,000 universities in the world? Let me just say it again. No shit. Higher education institutions teach a very small fraction of the languages that are spoken in the world today. So this is like my airport where I live is a small airport. Okay, Knoxville, Tennessee does not have a particularly big airport. So the limit, there's a pretty bad limit on the, the range of direct flights that I can get out of Knoxville. I have to fly to a hub city. Doesn't matter which airline, I have to fly to one of their hubs. So, you know, we can think of some of those. If I was on American, I might go to Dallas or Charlotte uh, or Philadelphia or Miami. If I were on United, I might go to Houston or Chicago or um, Dullis outside of D.C. used to be Newark, but they don't do that anymore for some reason that I don't understand. Uh, or Denver. If I were on on Delta, maybe it's going to be like Cincinnati. I don't know if Knoxville, I don't think it flies all the way to Salt Lake City. Um, Atlanta, I don't know where the Delta hubs are. I usually don't fly on Delta. Okay, so... There's some limitations in where I can go. I named most of the cities I can fly to straight out of Knoxville, right? And I think, why is there no direct flight from here to Nashville? It'd be convenient. I could fly to Nashville in 30 minutes. Why can't I fly to Nashville? I can fly to Charlotte. I can fly to Atlanta because those are hub cities. But Nashville's not a hub city. Why can't I? Ju- why is there not a flight? Why is there not more traffic between Knoxville and, and, and Nashville. Or why why can't I just fly directly, say, to Austin, Texas? If I can go to Houston and I can go to Dallas, why can't I go, or to Denver even, why can't I just go straight to Austin? Well, the reason is because there's not enough people getting on the fucking planes. That's why. There's not enough business. So if you fly people on little planes to hubs, it's easier to get a bunch of people who happen to be going to the same city onto one aircraft at one time. Turns out there are 6,500 languages in the world. Something like Go talk to your average person who's a professional and smart. Ask them to name as many languages as they can think of. If you let them write it down, I bet you they get to 30 or 40. Ask them how many languages they think it would be useful for them to possibly learn. I bet you they don't get past like six. Chinese, maybe. Everybody kind of recognizes that. Spanish, probably. German, maybe. French, eh. Well, that's it. If you don't speak English already, that's it. That's it. Japanese, maybe, maybe. Korean, meh. Under special circumstances. Like, you just kind of run out. So you put, like, 6,500 language classes. Who the fuck's going to take them? Nobody. This isn't a problem. This is a made-up problem. God, I hate these people. Higher education institutions teach a very small fraction of the languages that are spoken in the world today. 
They, do, they also do very little in the way of representing national languages in the daily life of the higher education institutions. Yeah, because we don't speak those languages here, stupid. As well as in documenting and preserving languages in order to be able to teach them and reproduce them. There are 6,500 of them, most of which are not useful to most people most of the time. We don't need to know all the different dialects of all the different regions of freaking sub-Saharan Africa. We don't. There are like hundreds of them, 900 or something. We don't need to know them. Language appreciation occurs with languages that are spoken nationwide or beyond borders, but hardly ever with the languages that are spoken locally, many of which are in danger of disappearing. This is a made-up problem, so they can start to leverage people to do shit that's expensive. That's all that is. Language is a powerful tool for epistemological dialogue. Higher education institutions can work toward the diversification of languages used within their walls. So what are you going to do? You're going to, you, you probably have Russian, I left out Russian. You probably have like Russian, German, French, Spanish, um, maybe, maybe Portuguese, Japanese, Chinese. Um, I don't know what article. You probably got maybe like nine or 10 languages at a typical university that are being taught. Maybe at a bigger university of 20, 22. What are they supposed to do? Oh, it's not even the major languages, national languages like Vietnamese or something like this. No, Afrikaans. It's not like major national languages, but hardly ever with the languages that are spoken locally. It's the higher education institution's job to somehow fix that problem that like literally like, you know, 400 people in the world speak a language and now universities. No, this is stupid. They can work toward the diversification of languages used within their walls. So what are they going to do? They speak like, they got like 10. Well, you know, change it to 12. Awareness, what are they just going to pick up some weird, like, little tiny language nobody speaks? God, these people are just talking about pro what they're doing is they're criticizing because if they criticize in a particular way, they can force change. The change is arbitrary. It means just is a means for them to exert power over other people. Awareness of languages and the knowledge they contain is a powerful means of achieving intercultural education within institutions and a means of projecting interculturality to a wider society. Oh, it's a virtue signal. Ah, projecting interculturality. The role of higher education institutions in fostering language diversity and strengthening local languages and thus preserving traditional wisdom and ways of knowing has great potential for grifting money and hiring more activist teachers. 3.4.3, who are bad at math, by the way, decolonizing the curriculum. We have posited throughout this section that the advancement and adoption of more holistic and inclusive ways of knowing in higher education, empowering students with global knowledge and respecting different cultural approaches to problem solving and human existence are critical for the advancement of the sustainable development goals for 2030 and beyond. They don't end at 2030, y'all. They actually kind of only start there. The global challenges being addressed by the Sustainable Development Goals are complex, interconnected, transdisciplinary, and immersed in social governance and values. As such, the knowledge we bring to mitigate or even solve global challenges must mirror that complexity and diversity, all the while respecting human rights and the development of more ethical, equitable, and just education and research paradigms. P.S. That means communism. Neo-communism, to be fair. 
One movement advancing these ideas is that of decolonizing the curriculum. Okay, see, so it's not going to be enough to add in a bunch of shit. You're going to have to get rid of what you already have. In short, decolonizing is about decentering the existing colonial form of, edu- of knowledge production in higher education and ensuring that more diverse ways of knowing are respected and built into higher education, curricula, practices, and governance. And when you do get my book, Marxification of Education, that's coming out soon and you read it, you're going to see that I do- devoted quite a bit of time to talking about decolonizing the curriculum because what it actually, what decolonizing the curriculum is, is actually it's taking that which produces or reproduces the existing culture out of the curriculum and replacing it with what Paulo Freire would call generative themes. It's not that you're just bringing in other stuff. You're bringing in other stuff that has radicalizing potential. That's specifically what it's about. That's why it's decentering the existing colonial form of knowledge production, and they're going to recenter particularly activist-driven other ways of knowing. Decolonization allied to reconciliation efforts is also about ensuring institutional reflection about how eras of colonialism past and present have shaped the modern higher education model and how that shaping has not been equitably beneficial to all. Harming po- So it's not being perfectly communist. Harming populations whose representation, perspective, and voice has not been considered, quote, worthy, rigorous enough, or acceptable to higher education norms. Beginning in South Africa and spreading to other contexts, such as the United Kingdom, UK, powerful movements such as Roads Must Fall, I literally brought that up earlier, I forgot that's in here, have directly challenged the dominance of Western perspectives and voices in the university curriculum. Yeah, Roads Must Fall in the South African context literally had a bunch of angry people yelling at an audience in this room that's clearly science built with whiteboards and projectors and shit, and they're screaming at these people about how they can science must fall, science is terrible, and science doesn't even consider the black magic of summoning lightning bolts against your enemy, using indigenous black tribal magic there in South Africa. I don't know a lot about the world. I have a limited knowledge of the world. I am virtually certain, as in I would bet my life on it, that nobody can summon a fucking lightning lightning bolt. I would literally bet my life, obviously, literally bet my life with any black wizard magic trick thing, whatever, black magic wizard, I would bet my life they cannot summon a lightning bolt to strike me. They can't do it. That's bullshit. I'm willing to bet my life. I'm so certain that that's not science. I'm willing to bet my life on that. You can't summon a lightning bolt to strike me. I invite you all to try. You cannot summon a lightning bolt to strike me. That's what's in the video from the Roads Must Fall video that they put out showing off how brilliant this is. This is what they're this is what UNESCO is touting. This is activist horseshit. What this was about was having the people who were standing in front of the classroom yell at people in order to gain more power. It was like a South African version of Evergreen. It's the same thing. It's just having people yell to gain power over what's going on there. So powerful movements such as Roads Must Fall have directly challenged the dominance of Western perspectives and voices in the university curriculum. Yeah, so these stupid activist kids got to have say over professors and stuff because they claimed that people can summon lightning bolts. Fuck these people. In addition, long-standing anti-racism movements in higher education and other global institutions gained new visibility and voice after the tragic killing of George Floyd in the United States in May in May 2020, sparking new reflections by higher education leadership. And that's their big grift was George Floyd. I can't believe this is in here. Long-standing anti-racism movements in, in higher education and other global institutions gain new visibility and voice 
No, they got forced into prominence. They were, it was, George Floyd was exploited as horrible. I mean, he's a terrible guy anyway, but he was exploited. I'm happy to say that. He was exploited so that they could force their communist horseshit to the forefront of everything. Sparking new reflections by higher education leadership, investments in more diverse faculty and leadership, and workshops advancing anti-racist pedagogy and supporting reflection on critical race theory. Isn't that amazing? But, of course, what killed George Floyd? How did George Floyd die? Well, George Floyd did not die because of a police officer, regardless of a guilty verdict. Turns out George Floyd died because he overdosed on fentanyl. How did George Floyd get fentanyl in his system? Well, because he was doing drugs. But where did those drugs come from? Hmm, probably from Mexico. Probably across the border. Why is the border so open? Because it would be anti-racist to have it open, and it would be racist to close it. So anti-racism killed George Floyd. Anti-racism at the border, which caused it to be open as a kitchen sieve, caused fentanyl to come into the country that got into George Floyd's body somehow and killed George Floyd. Anti-racism killed George Floyd, but anti-racism is what you have to push because of George Floyd. This is how they do. This work must continue if we are to bring different ways of knowing fully into our higher education systems and be prepared to truly, ethically, and inclusively develop knowledge to address complex global challenges. But how, but how can we do this? How do we advance co-production of knowledge in spaces where siloed, individualized scholarship, often conducted by isolating data from the complexities of society and nature, has been the norm and has advanced individual careers and institutional reputations for over 100 years? How do we rethink higher education institutions' approach to knowledge, incentives for tenure and promotion, include indigenous and traditional knowledge, and give greater voice to community and youth in a way that is inclusive, peaceful, and successful? Those are questions. One exciting network through which higher education leaders may further explore global engagement and partnerships to develop inclusive curricula, research structures, and ways of knowing for the Sustainable Development Goals is U-N-I-T-W-I-N slash UNESCO. So unit win slash UNESCO chairs program. I guarantee this is more United Nations fourth international horseshit. Quote, promoting international cooperation and networking between universities to reinforce higher education institutions worldwide, bridge the knowledge gap, mobilize university expertise, and collaborate around the Sustainable Development Goals Agenda 2030. Launched in 1992, the network comprises more than 850 institutions in over 110 countries. So they didn't, it's not a very good answer. How can we transform the whole university? Well, the answer is actually going to be give them power. They didn't say the answer because it would look really bad. So they just said something that doesn't make any sense. But the real answer is you give them power. 3.4.4, research. Now, you already just heard, by the way, that whatever you do is already, it's, it's siloed, it's individualized, it's not going to be, it's not going to work for sustainability. What you actually do, your research, not going to work. You're going to have to co-produce knowledge with humanities professors and arts professors and social science professors who aren't actually the ones that are the professors, they're the ones that are activists. That's going to be your job. That's going to be what you're going to do from here on out. You're going to have to do that. You're going to have to bring it like an evangelist down to the community. Now we're going to talk about what they're going to do to your research. 3.4.4, research. A core function of higher education institutions beyond educating the next generations is the, quote, creation of new knowledge through a system of research and discovery by campus faculty, students, and staff. While there is considerable regional variation in English-speaking countries, research is funded largely through competitive processes that use metrics defined by the funders, whether public or private, 
And in addition to direct costs, the funding may also cover all or part of the researcher's academic salaries. The outcomes of this funded research are traditionally expected to include one or more peer-reviewed academic papers published in high-value, quote, prestigious academic journals on the model that was pioneered and devised by Gillian Maxwell's father, Robert Maxwell, at Sage Publishing, and often written in a style to be read by peer academics rather than by the general public. Once published, academic research papers holding new knowledge are formally added to the list of a researcher's professional activities and, more importantly, to their annual record for potential career promotion within higher education. Higher education leaders will argue fairly that global investments in the current research ecosystem have been invaluable. The current system has been a cornerstone of the knowledge that fuels the global innovations and ideas that continue to save lives, underpin our security and infrastructure, and advance human prosperity. Yeah, not for long. These guys are going to decolonize all that. Yet, they should all agree, too, that the current research ecosystem builds upon and perpetuates, uh-oh, legacy issues of inequality, exclusion, power, and privilege. Metrics of success and merit have been defined largely by those in positions of power in the research community itself, mostly in Western countries. As such, the current system, while advancing innovative ideas and solutions, remains structurally ill-equipped to fund global cooperation and the co-design of knowledge creation beyond traditional paths. More importantly, for the Sustainable Development Goals, it is not yet structurally designed to truly value the different ways of knowing so essential to global sustainability, equity, and inclusion. Let me just remind you, every time you hear different ways of knowing, what you're actually listening to is a power grab. That is a fake justification for a power grab. So let me just reread that part, correcting for what it says. More importantly for, for the Sustainable Development Goals, it is not yet structurally designed to truly value the power grab that we're, that we're pulling off here that is so essential to, the, to global sustainability, equity, and inclusion. If we are to hope for research and innovation that advances toward a more sustainable, inclusive, and equitable planet, we shouldn't. That's communism. Higher education leaders should also argue for more interventions that will promote a sustainable, inclusive, and equitable research ecosystem. Uh-oh. As of now, we continue to approach global research challenges with misaligned, perhaps even harmful tools, like giving $800,000 of National Science Foundation money to feminist glaciology. No, not that. Not that. They like that. If we do not work to rethink and realign our global research ecosystem toward more knowledgeable co- sorry, toward more knowledge co-production and inclusion, we will leave brilliant ideas on the floor, exclude valuable partners, and perpetuate unethical inequalities in the research process as we develop a growing structural deficit in the knowledge needed to address the complex, transdisciplinary, and global challenges described in the SDGs. All these hundreds and thousands of words that these people have written boil down to one thing that they can't just come out and say because it would give it away, which is, we're the experts, give us power. We're the experts in the sustainability stuff, give us all the power. The good news is that despite entrenched norms, a trend toward higher education support of more collaborative, transdisciplinary, globally relevant research is already afoot. Maybe that's how the National Science Foundation money went to the Feminist Glacier paper. Increasingly recognized as a requirement for institutional relevance and in securing competitive funding for research, as well as a competitive advantage for those who show that their institution's research helps solve global challenges, institutions have begun investing in more globally connected, applied, and collaborative research programs. In other words, they're cooking the books to fund what they want to do. 
There are also investments and opportunities for researchers to develop skills and networks for more diverse dissemination of academic knowledge to communities, governments, and business leaders, like the World Economic Forum. And with increasing pressures from funders and governments, higher education institutions have begun working to advance greater diversity, inclusion, and equity in their hiring of researchers. No, they've been pulled by the ESG gun and forced to do that. But anyway, uh, HEIs have begun working to advance greater diversity, inclusion, and equity in their hiring of researchers and research leaders from underrepresented populations across disciplines. This is important work. Yet it is fair to say that this restructuring of higher education and research ecosystems is still very much in its infancy. This is important. Do more. You've almost broken your institutions, but you have to do so much more. We've only just started. That's what they're saying. Around the world, investment and change consistently come up against the inertia. I'm sorry, investments in change consistently come up against the inertia of powerful institutional norms. With any disruption to the status quo causing fear for institutional and individual financial well-being, promotion opportunities, and research reputation, it is also fair to say that these changes, while critical, are still not enough. So we don't, they're, they're accusing the universities of not liking to change because things might collapse. Psh, they will. By the way, they will. And it's fair to say they say that you, this, isn't, this is critical, but it's not nearly enough. You have to do so much more. Stop being scared. Jump all the way in transform yourselves, go ahead and commit the strange death of the university for yourselves. To truly address the future sustainability of our planet and our people, we need, we will need a research ecosystem which also recognizes the value of diverse ways of knowing and knowledge co-production. Power grab. We will need to advance and support more inclusive and equitable research design operations, expectations, and resource investment all at an accelerated pace. In other words, we have to dump money into the Soviet, more and more and more, faster and faster, if we hope to truly address the global goals of the 2030 agenda, which I assert we shouldn't. We do not. That's not what the university's for. That's not what we're here for. We didn't sign up for this shit. No. There are early exciting roadmaps for this kind of holistic research ecosystem transformation. Listen to that. Holistic research ecosystem transformation, that's what they want. That means they're in charge of some bullshit. Developing mainly in the participatory research, knowledge co-production, and, quote, boundary-spanning academic communities, as well as in fields such as global health, where issues of equity and inclusion are core aspects of practice. I'm telling you, this is really just a gigantic power grab. All this ways of knowing shit is a a gigantic power grab for this new council, this new Soviet of people, to take over research at every level. This is how you Sovietize. This is how you create Lysenkoism. The last episode was the death of science. This is just going to accelerate it. This is the death of knowledge, the strange death of knowing. Actually, I think I might call this episode that. The work to address many of these gaps and to develop more inclusive and equitable knowledge co-production frameworks is advancing rapidly in the field of Arctic studies, especially as Arctic indigenous peoples develop and demand clear research engagement protocols on their own terms, requiring the respects of indigenous rights, I have to scroll up, leadership and self-determination by outside academic interests. This is an interesting little story I just heard at at an event I did in Los Angeles. So the, there, were, there were some sociologists, apparently, who penetrated into some of the secret meetings that the World Economic Forum has, the ones that are not public, which they have several different types of these. They talk about the fact that they exist. And so some people infiltrated and went in and, and just 
listen, in one of the one of the sessions in one of these closed meetings, which nobody's supposed to know what happens in them, they actually it's not quite right. They operate under what's called Chatham House rules. You can look up the Chatham House rules and find out. But these these people, I think they're sociologists, uh, infiltrated. And one of the session topics was what do we do with the Arctic? And here we find the Arctic. Chatham House rules, by the way, allow you to talk about the ideas, but not about their sources. You can't say who said it. You can't say who they're affiliated with. You can't say who is in the room or who anybody was affiliated with. Oh, this guy from this guy from ExxonMobil. You can't say stuff like that. Chatham House rules. You can use the ideas, but you can't say where they came from. And here we have this thing. I don't know if it's coincidence or not. Talking about you know all this crap to do with the Arctic, and this whole paragraph's about the Arctic as it keeps going. But what do we do about the Arctic? Was like there are these like miniature demigods who can. What do we do about the Arctic? I don't know. Let's turn it into a theme park. Oh my god! These indigenous research protocols also require researchers to receive invitations to work in study areas within indig- indigenous land claims. A formal commitment by researchers to the co-production of knowledge and respect for indigenous ways of knowing. The fair compensation of time for indigenous knowledge holders involved in research programs. The free, prior, and informed consent of indigenous leaders regarding research, data management, and dissemination, and a commitment to ongoing dialogue and relationship building extending far beyond any single research program, and a recognition of of the importance of moving to new research ecosystem protocols in the Arctic, global Arctic research networks and funders, including the USA National Science Foundation, NSF. These are the people that funded the fucking Glacier Study. U-Arctic Network and EU PolarNet, among others, are actively prioritizing research through the diver- through diverse ways of knowing, knowledge co-production, and the active inclusion of indigenous knowledge and structural research protocols, funding language metrics for, su- for success, deliverables, and operational investments. For higher education leaders working to advance more sustainable, inclusive, and impactful research to address global challenges and the Sustainable Development Goals, the time to explore revisiting and revising traditional research ecosystem structures and advancing investments in research ecosystem transformation is now. They have a whole page about the Arctic after this in a box. We're going to skip 3.4.5, Publishing. Not enough to remake all of research, we're going to have to remake publishing. One of the key functions of universities is to validate scientific knowledge in all disciplinary areas. It does this primarily through academic journals regulated by a system of peer review. Tell me, ask me what, ask me what I think about peer review. While in many ways this is an intellectually sound and democratic process, in recent years it has led to some unfortunate outcomes in terms of representation of voices and ideas within the literature and access to the general, of the general public to that literature. While there is considerable diversity between disciplinary areas and between different regions, many journals are run by commercial publishers with high charges for reader subscriptions. That's Robert Maxwell's Sage Publishing Model. Access to scholarly publishing can therefore be difficult for those not affiliated to well-resourced universities in high-income countries. There are increasing numbers of open access journals, but many of these cover their costs through charges to authors and thereby provide a barrier to those seeking to publish their research. Furthermore, there has been a growth in predatory publishers aiming to profit from academics' needs to publish, but without a robust review, editing, or distribution infrastructure. Competition for for publishing has been exacerbated by the perceived need for academics all around the world to publish in a limited number of prestigious journals and even journal equity. 
Reinforced by evaluation and promotion criteria, these journals are predominantly in the English language, especially those of listed in exclusive databases such as the Web of Science or Scopus, with the emphasis on those with a high impact factor. The very high rejection rates of many of these journals put them out of the reach of researchers and poorly resourced institutions for non-native speakers of English and without a robust support for academic writing. In addition to exacerbating inequalities, this emphasis on a restricted number of journals also leads to a homogenization of thought and goes against the diversity of ways of knowing discussed in this report. I support this. I support this completely. I think those journals should publish everything. Anybody sends them something, they should publish it. That's what I think they should do. That's a great idea. These dominant structures of sharing knowledge restrict access to those already involved. Yeah, I totally agree, guys. Great critical theory of journal publishing. Publish everything. I think that's a great idea. And are one of the root causes of power asymmetries. Specialized disciplinary outlets and paywalls impose barriers, and there is little, little diversification of ways of sharing knowledge. Open access without fees, either for authors or readers, and open science are therefore essential, diversifying the way we generate and disseminate knowledge, and diversifying our partners and our audience. The metric used, metrics used to gauge research output should also be part of this discussion, either moving away from metrics or using them in creative ways to promote diversification and inclusivity rather than homogenization and hegemony. So we're, gonna, we're not going to use impact factor anymore. We're going to use uh, inclusion factor. That'll, that'll just make things... Just please, discredit academic writing as fast as possible. I back all of that for that reason. 3.4.6, when does it stop? Engagement with community and nature. Higher education institutions, as has been noted throughout this section, are both physical and philosophical gathering places where ideas, innovations, teaching, learning, research, and service connect across generations from students just finishing their secondary schooling to professors with decades of service. Nobody goes to a university except for football games, except if they're in a university. This is bullshit. In a few disciplines, notably the arts and humanities, philosophy, geography, agricultural studies, environmental studies, indigenous studies, and fields such as population, biology, anthropology, and civil engineering, professors also highlight the concept of the coupled or integrated relationship of human and natural systems as a core part of the discipline's curriculum. Yeah, you worked really hard to get environmental studies, indigenous studies, uh, and civil engineering on a level there. Yet, despite human lives being wholly dependent upon the natural world for our sustenance and existence, uh-oh, that's where Marx said that nature is man's inorganic body. That's literally Marx. The idea that all of higher education should or even must center its curriculum, oh goodness, what's it going to say? Pedagogy and research on a deeper exploration and understanding of the connected existential relationship between humans and nature, nature is not the norm. See, we're, it's not studying man's inorganic body, as Marx had it. In fact, a more holistic approach is often seen in traditional academic systems as fact-free, radical, quote, soft, less rigorous, and less valuable for academic promotion. All true. Much of the work of, quote, modern academe is still considered most valuable, because it is, and most rock, rap, uh, most replicable for publication, tenure, and promotion when concepts relating to human communities and the natural world are isolated, removed from the complexities of society and nature to be studied as singular behaviors and controlled interactions in both space and time. Yes, controlled circumstances, rather than you guys making shit up like Karl Marx did, is preferred. 
which is what you're doing under the branding of sustainability now, is you're making shit up like Karl Marx did. While isolated disciplinary knowledge is indeed valuable, creating depth of understanding and expertise that is proven beneficial to our understanding of human and natural phenomena, it is clear that production of knowledge that couples human and natural systems is critical for addressing global, social, natural, and policy-relevant issues such as the Sustainable Development Goals. So what you're doing is good, but it needs to be better. Community-based participatory research in the natural and physical sciences is still in its infancy is still in its infancy, with traditional academic systems and academic journals still struggling to understand how to support and elevate studies that are intentionally complex, iterative, time-consuming, and holistic in their approach. Why are they intentionally complex? Oh yeah, because that means that the wizards get to be in charge of what they say. Sustainable development is about the future health of human communities within and among our natural systems on the earth. As such, the connections, relationships, interlinkages, feedback loops, and and social context of any knowledge or way of knowing that are needed to address SDG targets must include more holistic, contextual, and grounded approaches, a perspective from which humans and natural systems may be studied together over time and iteratively, iteratively like dialectically, you know, like one turn of the dialectic after the next. While more and more leaders in higher education recognize a need to be, quote, problem solvers, quote, globally engaged, and quote, in service to society as part of their brand, we have yet to see many higher education institutions going further in recognizing the immutable fact that human communities and nature are intermingled, that they shape one another, that the future survival of both is incontrovertibly intertwined and inseparable. What if higher education leaders acknowledged this and the required curriculum for a bachelor's degree required courses in holistic ways of knowing? more inclusive approaches to human community interactions and respect for cultures and knowledge systems with centuries, if not millennia, of experience of this approach. For example, the holistic framework already underpins several indigenous knowledge traditions. Samak Kaose, also known as Buen Vivir in Spanish, loosely translated as good living, Sumak Kaose, I guess, I don't know, is a philosophy of life of Andean origin that challenges the separated and exploitative relationship between human beings and nature by placing the individual within a web of mutually supportive and harmonious relationships with the community and the natural environment. Is this the same one where they cut out their hearts? These ideas have been influential in social movements and indigenous communities throughout Latin America, including the field of education. Ubuntu in Southern Africa also provides a generative resource to reframe human relationships, translated simply as humanity or I am because you are. I'm not even going to try to say that next part. It affirms the reciprocity between human beings and their identities and interests and has been widely utilized in the region and beyond to provide an overarching educational philosophy and basis of community life. So, looking to the Arctic, the work of Barnhart and uh, Coagli, I think, 2005, summarized by Shirley Tagalik. I think that's right, 2012, showed that indigenous worldviews are generally holistic in perspective and encompass an interconnections. This is so much just crap. This No one needs to hear this. I really should just skip this part. Are generally holistic in perspective and encompass interconnections amongst all aspects of life and place. In fact, the words Inuit are uh, not even happening. It starts with a Q-A-U-J-I-M-A-J-A-T-U-Q-A-N-G-I-T, or I-Q, 
mean a way of knowing in Anuktitut, the Inuit language, and IQ has been formally defined by Inuit elders and the government of Nunavut as being grounded in uh, four core principles or maligate of working for the common good, respecting all living things, maintaining harmony and balance, and and continually planning and preparing for the future. IQ is further recognized as knowledge embedded in a process with six guiding principles for the continuous application of IQ in Inuit society and nature. All they're trying to do is sound smart. There's actually nothing here. 3.5. There's a whole section still. Ways forward. Toward epistemic pluralism. The university is one of the world's oldest institutions and owes its longevity in large part to its success in reinventing itself for different ages and continuing to provide a locus for transformation of learners and production of knowledge of value to humanity. They're telling you you have to transform to remain relevant. This report fully recognizes the tremendous val- tremendous value of traditional higher education institutions and the contribution that the main- that mainstream science has made to societies. The argument put forward here is not that we should do away with the knowledge forms that have been at the heart of science and the university, but that we should set them in dialogue with other forms of knowledge. By the way, that will do away with them. Pluralism and parity of respect are simply expressions of the same kind of rigorous skepticism about content that science itself aspires to. No, what we're seeing is yet another attempt for them to elevate not science to the level of science in terms of being able to figure out what's going on in the world. That's all it is. It's a power grab by people who don't have science on their side. It's exactly the same thing Marx did when he claimed that his his ideas were the Wissenschaftlicher Socialismus, which is the scientific socialism. That is science. That is the only true science of history. See, I'm a scientist too. Listen to me. It's not. It's counter-enlightenment thinking. It's nonsense. Paradoxically, challenging the university in this way may be the best way to protect it. Yeah, because there's an extortion racket going that'll bust it up if it doesn't do what it's told. Given the profound changes in societies and increasing demands for a substantive democratization of opportunities and participation, see, they're saying there's going to be an extortion racket happening here, and the complex global challenges threatening humanity's very existence, the traditional structures and procedures of higher educational institutions are unlikely to be adequate. Opening up a more plural space within the university is key to the survival, not the destruction of the institution. See, everything is changing and you're going to go along with it or you're going to be left behind. That's the, that's the message. There's nothing you can do to stop it. What you already do has been great, but it was a, it's a relic of the past. We're going to a new time and everybody's going to force you to come along. That's the message. Higher education institutions are the ideal setting for pluralizing views of the world and finding solutions to common problems by way of dialogue with different sectors of society and with different ways of knowing. That is not what they're for. Though higher education institutions have prioritized a certain worldview and idealized science as the true way of knowing, because it is, it is in these same institutions that openness, acceptance of other way, other truths, quote truths, and recognition of the efficacy of other ways of knowing and understanding and solving problems that affect us all are possible. See, the university is being leveraged here. Epistemological dialogue involving different ways of knowing, there are no different ways of knowing, other ways of proceeding toward knowledge and governance and other, quote, truths coming mainly from traditional sectors of society and local communities, they should just say, and activists, is a new and largely unexplored way of knowing and learning. We know that dialogue transforms those involved in it. It is a form of learning and allows consensus to be reached. It opens up new avenues for problematizing and generating questions. Oh, problematizing, really? 
thus seeking knowledge in complementary ways. No, it's critical theory. One condition for dialogue is representation and participation. Higher education institutions have to open up to sectors of society that have traditionally been excluded from their campuses. Sounds like they're going to be talking about racism and the 60s and all that. No, 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 no. It's going to be talking about stupidity. Efforts must be made to more equally represent all sectors of society in both faculty and students in order for dialogue to be possible. Bullshit. Contributing to opening up lifelong learning opportunities to all, which is mentioned as a key part of SDG 4, is also an area that higher education institutions should strengthen. So you don't grow up, get educated, and enter the world as an adult that can function. No, you're a lifelong learner, and re-education comes every couple of years. Do you not understand what's happening here? Dialogue involves abandoning the idea of shaping others to reject their origin and accept modernity. Quote, modernity. On the contrary, dialogue involves respect, openness, and an unprejudiced outlook on multiple potentially enriching encounters. So they're just manipulating people into accepting whatever they call diversity. This goes on so long. Is there anything else in this that actually matters? How do we then move forward in the task of ensuring diverse ways of knowing within higher education institutions? It is clear that simultaneous action is needed at multiple levels and in different spheres. This can be really complex. Hire us. While marketization is new, sorry, while marketization and new forms of corporate management have compressed autonomy within contemporary universities, higher education institutions, there is still significant freedom of action for lecturers, and much of the innovation will take place at the micro level. Students are also critical in this regard for forging new spaces for learning and engaging with communities. Yet action by higher education institution leaders is needed and at the same time in challenging the structures and governments of institutions. We also need to think about working within and outside the higher education institution system. This is just pages and pages of you need to go Basically, though, this part's funny. Sorry, I have to actually read this. Some Portuguese guy, I skipped his name, argues that in order to address the limitations of contemporary higher education and ensure an ecology of knowledges, we need to create what he calls the pluriversity and the subversity. The pluriversity is forged within our existing traditional higher education institutions, opening up new spaces for alternative practices, actors, and knowledge forms. It is the creation of the plural instead of the unitary in the higher education space. The subversity, on the other hand, is, is created at the margins of the higher education system. As such, it has, much, has a much greater degree of freedom to experiment with new institutional structures and is also subversive in the sense of challenging the academic and political hegemony. In other words, we've got to build Gramsci's counter-hegemony cell uh, explicitly and call it the subversity for subversive. The subversivity is part of the university, which is going to become a pluriversity, so it's not too focused on one thing. Action to transform higher education in both of these ways is vital. Of course, it is difficult to transform systems overnight, but there is always room for movement towards the pluriversity. My God. Despite the significant pressures on academic work in the contemporary era, brought about by intensified academic capitalism, marketization of access, and competition for, uh, for status through rankings and metrics, universities and higher education institutions in most countries still retain enough autonomy in teaching, research, and community engagement for counter-hegemonic initiatives. I told you, Gramsci. That's Antonio Gramsci. That's Marxist. That's cultural Marxism. 
It's the infiltration of the institutions to change them from within, through a subversity. At the same time, there are contexts in which political and academic freedoms are currently severely constrained, in which action will be inevitably more tentative. So this is, when I say this is the strangeness of the university, I'm not not kidding. They literally want to create a pluriversity in place of the university. The university will die and be replaced by a pluriversity with a subversity attached to it. The opportunities, they tell us, for creating subversities are much more limited, given the constraints of resources, regulation, and accreditation. Never, they're activist training centers is all they are, literally. Nevertheless, as highlighted in this report, there are some inspiring examples of what can be achieved. See a bunch of boxes. I'm not going to read that. But more efforts are needed in this regard. Globally, higher education systems are vertically differentiated or stratified, but show little authentic horizontal differentiation. Space needs to be opened up for new forms of institutions to emerge. For example, indigenous, environmental, ones that challenge our conception of the university in ways that will positively energize and refresh the higher education sector and provide a vision of what is possible. In Latin America, intercultural universities have been set up in several countries. Many of these target indigenous students and propose epistemic dialogue as well as research on language and local knowledge as a basis for educating future professionals trained in areas considered necessary for local development. Blah, blah, blah. The task of making room for diverse ways of knowing is closely linked to the other main emphases of this report. The way that higher education institutions engage with disciplinarity, chapter 2, and external communities, chapter 4. Thinking beyond academic disciplines is an important part of the epistemological and ontological shift that will allow different knowledge traditions, cultures, and languages to exist within higher education institutions. Equally, this shift will not be possible without the vibrant engagement of diverse communities and a porous boundary with society. Activists. Transforming an institution in this way is no easy task, but if we are to have any chance of achieving the sustainable development goals and ensuring a fair and flourishing future for humanity, we must move from, quote, saving the world to, quote, embracing a pluriverse. I think this is the end. There's these boxes. It is the end. Okay, thank God that's over. Okay, so the strange death of the university. This Previously, we were talking about the death of science. That's the previous episode. This episode, I'm going to call the death of knowledge, the strange death of knowledge, the strange death of science, the strange death of knowledge within the university. The university's strange death, I get to summarize. I'm not going to read chapters four and five. You can. I mean, there's lots of nuggets in there, but this is boring. The strange death of the university, as I'm going to summarize it, is the death, as I just said, of the university as a university and becoming some new thing called a pluriversity that doesn't exist. It is the death of science by interjecting into them activism from that's located primarily in the fields of the arts, humanities, and social sciences, but really what it is is neo-communism. Knowledge has to be destroyed. Knowledge production has to be plurified or pluralized or whatever the hell they're calling it. And what that ultimately means is this is a power grab. What that ultimately means is that people that are actually producing knowledge that could possibly shut down the emerging Soviet are going to be displaced. Because remember, not anything goes. That's really the key part of this. It's not that anything goes. It's what they say goes. Okay? Right-wing thought does not go. Things that contradict the Soviet does not go. 
the university is no longer going to be allowed to be directed toward truth. And in fact, it has to be directed not, that would be university, it has to be directed toward truths. That's pluriversity. And the truths are a complex web of things that the activists get to pick and choose from so that they're always right and you're always wrong. This is, in a sense, the Sovietization of the university, except the difference is that with the Soviet, when we hear Soviet, we always think of the USSR, obviously. We always think of the Communist Party, obviously, because the Soviet existed. The Soviet was a council, it was the Soviet council. I mean, that would be repetitive, actually. Soviet means council. It was the council of the Communist Party that ran the government in the USSR, for example. And so what it was is it was a logic. Uh, it was a council, literally, but it had a logic to it that served the party. It had particular goals, which was the spread of global communism. These goals have transformed into this neo-communist agenda of sustainability or the sustainable inclusive future. It's enshrined in the 17 sustainability goals or sustainable development goals of Agenda 2030 through the United Nations. And those people are going to be the new council, the new Soviet. And what's going to happen is knowledge itself is going to be watered down and complexified so that they get to determine what's knowledge and what isn't. Not anything goes. What they say go. Your disciplines are going to be watered down and complexified so that they get to control how they actually work. They're going to have to become transdisciplinary. The views of activists in the English department are going to dictate what's going on in the chemistry department, in the physics department. Queer chemistry is a thing I talked about in the previous episode. And in the setting for all this, you say, James, this is really, you're getting out there. You're talking about all this communism, blah, 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 the, the different references to Marx and Marcuse, notwithstanding. But I draw you back to the very first of the four episodes. I really should mention the second episode also, which um, was the new sensibility. So the second episode, this was the second episode was the introduction to this document. The first episode was the executive summary and the preface. And so in, in the new sensibility, we have, it's being laid out that the new sensibility of the university, the new binding morals, the new binding rationality, the new sensibility of university logic is going to be the sustainable development goals and their achievement, which is going to require, I guess, a pluriversity to do that, as we see at the end of this chapter. The very first episode that was titled The Red Thread. And the, the new sensibility, by the way, was a reference to Marcuse, chapter two of, of the essay on liberation. It's called The New Sensibility, or A New Sensibility, I guess. He says we need a new sensibility in order to get there. But if we go back to the, re the first sentence of this document is that that, that transformation is the red thread running through the sustainable development goals. Transformation. This is a Marxist idea. We can read many, many things saying that this is exactly what Marx endeavored. We see this again and again. This is just neo-communism, but why do they call it a red thread? Because it's communism. Then that's the very first page document. And then there's a second thing. I don't remember when forward, preface, introduction, whatever they called them. The introduction to the executive summary. I don't remember. The next page, the second page of this document starts off by appealing directly to Herbert Marcuse and One Dimensional Man and the need to refer back to that for the grounding for this piece. This is neo-communism. The university is being destroyed. It is dying a strange death. It is transforming itself gleefully, willingly, excitedly, into something that it never should have been, and in fact, into something that won't be a university anymore when it's done. At best, it will mimic a university. It will do regime-useful 
doctored research. It will employ lots and lots of people to do regime-approved activities, and it will brainwash people into regime beliefs, which it has targeted as being the sustainable development goals of Agenda 2030 in this document. This UNESCO document. I remind you, this is the United Nations that has published this thing. And so, this is a strange death for the university. Higher education institutions we read on the very first page in a big blue circle must take on a stronger role to tackle the world's most pressing issues. It is their job to transform themselves into something that uses inter- and transdisciplinary modes of producing and circulating knowledge, becoming open institutions, fostering epistemic dialogue and integrating diverse ways of knowing, and demanding a stronger presence in society through, pro- through proactive engagement and partnering, partnering other societal actors. It must not, must not support any non-sustainable practice in any way, research, funding, etc., endowments. This is a very strange death for the university. I think this has to be stopped. I think if you're involved in a university and you care about what universities are and you believe in universities whatsoever, if you believe that they are a valuable aspect of the society, you have to recognize that they're, they're coming to an end. This document signals this. We're not like stage, you know, like at the very beginning of the death of the university. I think the university right now is in hospice. It's already dying, and this document indicates the final death of the university, where no longer shall it be oriented toward obtaining the truth. It will now be oriented toward achieving an agenda. If you don't want to be a part of that, with everything that it entails, you have to fight this. If you don't mind being a part of that, screw you, but you're selling everything out. You're not thinking clearly. What will come out of this will be just another vehicle for achieving an activist agenda to transform and control our world. If I were still part of the university, I wouldn't want to be a part of it. I may not be a part of a university for much longer, but I would have to stand up and fight. I would have to give it up. You're looking for your hill. This is your hill. If you're in the university, this is the hill to die on. I said that before. I'll say it again. I really mean it. If you allow the transformation of the universities further, they're already DEI nightmares. If you allow the transformation of the university all the way into the achievement of the sustainable development goals for the United Nations to the no longer implicit agenda that there's benefits of diversity that they've lied to you about so far, but to the explicit agenda that the point of a university is to help society achieve the sustainable development goals of the United Nations Agenda 2030. If you stay on board with that, what you're staying on board with is no longer a university at all. You're a cog in a machine, and the machine is a tyranny. And I don't know what to say to you. So I hope you'll stand. I hope you'll fight. And I hope actually that I'm wrong and the universities are not in hospice and that they can be rescued from this by hearing this shock, seeing this shock, and realizing now is the moment to stand up and fight.